My name is Lieutenant Aldo Rain, and I'm putting together a special team, and I need me eight soldiers. Eight Jewish American soldiers. Now, y'all might have heard rumors about the Armada happening soon. Well, we'll be leaving a little earlier. We're gonna be dropped into France, dressed as civilians. And once we're in enemy territory, as a bushwhacking guerrilla army, we're gonna be doing one thing, and one thing only. Killing Nazis. Now, I don't know about y'all, but I sure as hell didn't come down from the goddamn Smoky Mountains, cross 5,000 miles of water, fight my way through half of Sicily, and jump out of a fucking aeroplane to teach the Nazis lessons in humanity. Nazi ain't got no humanity. They're the foot soldiers of a Jew-hating, mass-murdering maniac, and they need to be destroyed. That's why any and every some bitch we find wearing a Nazi uniform, they're gonna die. Now, I'm the direct descendant of the mountain man Jim Bridger. That means I got a little engine in me. And our battle plan will be that of an Apache resistance. We will be cruel to the Germans. And through our cruelty, they will know who we are. And they will find the evidence of our cruelty in the disemboweled, dismembered, and disfigured bodies of their brothers we leave behind us. And the German won't be able to help themselves. But imagine the cruelty their brothers endured at our hands, and our boot heels, and the edge of our knives. And the German will be sickened by us. And the German will talk about us. And the German will fear us. And when the German closes their eyes at night, and they're tortured by their subconscious for the evil they have done, it will be with thoughts of us that they are tortured with. Sound good? Yes, sir! That's what I like to hear. But I got a word of warning for all you would-be warriors. When you join my command, you take on Devitt. A debit you owe me, personally. Each and every man under my command owes me 100 Nazi scalps. And I want my scalps. And all y'all will get me 100 Nazi scalps, taken from the heads of 100 dead Nazis. Or you will die trying. Scott, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would always you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? Do you think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 257, Inglorious Bastards. Returning to the world of one Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, we've been crossing off some of his movies yeah. over the years after holding out for a long time. Remember, we didn't do one of his films for... Until we were almost to episode 100. That's right. We did Jackie Brown. Yeah, this one weirdly has been on my mind lately. I just wanted to watch it, but I held off until we did it for the pod. 
I don't know, it's kind of the, the time away from it, you start to think of just the great scenes that are in it. And really, unlike a lot of movies that are out there, you know, just like these insanely long dialogue-driven scenes that make up a, a two-plus-hour movie. Yeah, but I would it, say that it's sort of similar to his other films, but he's the only one doing it that way. Yeah, although, I, I yeah, that's true. I would say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood doesn't have as much dialogue, but I think The Hateful Eight and, and Django are, are pretty similar. For sure. But this was, like, sort of considered a comeback in a way. I would say by this point, you are a good, you know, four or five years after Kill Bill. That's right. I think that even though people love Kill Bill, by the time the second one came out and, you know, the yeah. the hoopla sort of died down. And then, obviously, the Grindhouse thing with Robert Rodriguez completely bombs. It's really like his only complete failure at the box office. That's right. And I, I think that those of us who were fans were not worried. Oh, yeah, yeah. But in a more mainstream sense, this was a huge comeback. When the trailers were hitting for this, there was so much buzz. And I think that there were so many years before Kill Bill of him doing nothing. I don't know what the hiatus was, like nine years or something, I think. Yeah, well, part of it, I think, was trying to make this movie and write this script and get it right. That was part of it. Yeah, yeah. But I know Kill Bill was big and people like it, but the material of it, wasn't quite as mainstream, you know? I, well, that was... There's been multiple shifts in his career, and Kill Bill was definitely one of them. Yeah. And Inglorious Bastards is another one. Right, right. And when Inglorious Bastards was coming out, I can just remember the palpable buzz. People were interested. I think And with, not just cinephiles. I think with Kill Bill, it was a wake-up call that he was not going to just write gangster crime stories. Right. Because that's sort of what he had done. Yeah, for that's three, true. His first three films, it was a complete departure. I think Kill Bill is awesome. I think you, if you watch, I've never been able to watch the whole Bloody Affair. I've never seen Same. that, but I have watched them back to back, and it is great. And we will do it eventually on this show. Probably break them up to make it easier, but it's like a a one off. There's not going to be like a whole career trajectory where you're able to do stuff like that because it's too. Although, despite off the beaten what path. he would say about his own career at times, we've talked about it a bunch of times, him after like every project, it's just going to like continue on forever. Yeah, there was a point where he was trying to get a movie in Mandarin off the ground, oh, yeah, and yeah. that didn't come together. <laughs> so sometimes, yeah, his ideas are a little wild. And yeah, maybe he will one day actually choose to revisit Kill Bill, which he has flirted with, but... This is not the Kill Bill episode. No, that's true. But um, I do think it, that Bastards was its own departure because it launched his love affair with alternate histories, which he has repeated several times in some of his films. And I think that that opens up its own can of worms in terms of what do these movies mean? How do audiences interpret them? How do they process them? Kind of like creating his own genre. Yeah, I, I'm sure other people have played with it. Sure. But yeah, he's really committed full on. But there's a style that goes along with it, too, that's his. Yeah, I think anybody who knows Tarantino knows he's obsessed with revenge movies, and he sort of turns these historical things into his own revenge fantasies. And I, I do think that's important to keep in mind that Inglorious Bastards is, first and foremost, a fantasy movie. Sure. 
in a historical setting and not really applying traditional fantasy elements to it, but it is a daydream, you know, that kind of a thing. I have sort of a weird relationship with this movie in the sense that when I saw it in the theater, I loved it. But as the years went on, I, I kind of took a lot of years off from this movie. I, I kind of was like, I don't know if I love Inglorious Bastards. Now I'm back in thinking it's in the top half of his movies. <laughs> They're all in the top half. Yeah, I know. That's the thing. Well, if I list them all out, we do all of his movies and I say that about all of them. I'm more in on this than Kill Bill. That's tough for me. They're about even for Okay, me. yeah. I do think that you totally underappreciate Kill Bill. That's probably fair. I think it's fucking awesome. Yeah, but there was a time period where I was really not hating Inglorious Bastards, but I was like, I, I just was finding myself not really caring to revisit it. But I don't know. The urge has come back, and you know, I said it before the show. I think the first three quarters of this movie I really love. It's great scene after great scene. Yeah, I, it actually hasn't been that long for me. I just watched it like a few months ago, and now I'm returning to it already. Yeah, you're sick of it. All right, so we've talked a lot already, but let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Give us a rating and review if you get a chance. If you'd like a sticker, let us know on Twitter. Find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. It's always like a wave of sticker requests at once and then like nothing for a while, you know? Yeah, it comes and goes. That's okay. Drips and drabs. Not everyone needs a sticker. No. <laughs> All right, so let's get into it. Inglorious Bastards, the 2009 film written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. It was a big deal. It got eight Academy Award nominations, which at the time was the most. He has since surpassed it with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But for Tarantino films, that was the highest at the time. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay. Which it didn't win, right? No. But best, I, I remember that year being like stunned. Best Cinematography for Robert Richardson. Best Film Editing, Sally Menke. Oh, yeah. Editor of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah, this was the last collaboration between Tarantino and Sally Menke. She tragically passed away after this from like heat stroke. Yeah, I don't know it well, but you hear these stories on podcasts that supposedly they had had some pretty big blow-ups in their times working together with her like cutting stuff out that he was like no way that has to be in it but always coming back to like it was the right choice oh yeah you listen to him now and he's still not over yeah she was like the closest thing he had to a regular collaborator she edited his films from reservoir dogs through inglorious bastards and when she died like, you cannot overstate how big of a loss it was, both personally and professionally for him, clearly. Right. Best sound mixing, best sound editing, which is, I, I'm always annoyed that that's two different things. <laughs> Sorry <laughs> for all you sound people. It's like, come on, really? Yeah, I know. Back when we cared about the Oscars, that was like the section of the show where we were just like, let's just get through this. And then the one Oscar that it did win was Best Supporting Actor for Christoph Waltz. Who, After a big kind of coming out party for most of us, I think. Yeah, I think that American audiences had no idea who he was. I remember at the time, the whole spiel was he was a German TV actor who acted on TV in Germany. I'm, I'm sure he had done other stuff too, but that was like the big thing that I kept hearing back then. All of a sudden, this guy's like showing up in like Water for Elephants. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that outside of Tarantino's work, I'm not 100% sold on Christoph Waltz. He fits in with Tarantino's stuff. Definitely. When you try to put him into more serious or grounded material, he feels weird. Yeah, a little bit more of a weird fit. I remember him in that Polanski movie, Carnage. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Which is a weird movie in and of itself. Yeah, he probably fit into that, although I don't really remember much about it. Right. Kate Winslet. We'll talk more about Waltz as we go, but I think one of the key things in Inglorious Bastards is that Tarantino's pretty much admitted that if he had not found Christoph Waltz to play Hans Landa, that the movie would not be made. That he was starting to give up hope to find the right guy. You know, I'm sure he's being hyperbolic a little bit and exaggerating it just a tad. Hard to just completely pull the plug on a project. He was very discouraged that things weren't working out because he decided that he needed a very specific actor and just was not finding him. The film had a $70 million budget, and it grossed a worldwide total of $321.5 million, which was the highest for Tarantino at that point. It was passed by Django Unchained, which still remains his highest grossing film. Oh, wow. Okay. The title was inspired by Italian director Enzo G. Castellari's macaroni combat film, The Inglorious Bastards, spelled in the traditional way from 1978. Though Tarantino's film is in no way a remake. And Tarantino has not really explained the first U in Inglorious or the spelling of bastards. <laughs> it's just sort of one of those things. I'm always tempted to think that he just misspelled it on his first script and then decided that that's how it was going to be. That's like Pet Cemetery. Well, that's explained. Yeah, though, yeah. That the children that made the Can't Pet spell. Cemetery didn't know how yeah. to spell it. We're not really sure why Inglorious Bastards is spelled that way. With the E and yeah. the extra U and everything. Well, another thing I was telling you before the show, leading up to this movie, seeing the trailers and everything, I had this whole idea of what this movie would be like. And it was, I got to tell you, a lot more combat than what's in the movie. Like a lot of guerrilla warfare of this group of soldiers attacking German camps. I knew Tarantino had this. We're coming off of Grindhouse. So like this Grindhouse obsession with exploitation films. And certainly there are World War II versions of that. I mean, I'm thinking that's going to be in the mix, but the almost no combat in this movie yeah. was a complete surprise. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that as we go along, but it seems like he was determined to write this film to death, and whether or not he was successful at his attempts at making his own masterpiece, I guess, would be up to the viewer. But he put a lot of pressure on himself, and I think that's one of the reasons he kept writing and writing and writing for basically a decade and the film took forever. Right. And we'll talk about that in a minute, but I remember hearing about this so long before it came out. Oh, wow. I mean, just way before a lot of the other stuff he did. I just wasn't able to follow stuff like that. Well, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. (laughs) The original Inglorious Bastards, which is just the American title, obviously an Italian film is not going to be in right. English, yes. and it's not going to always be a direct translation, but the that's the American title of the, the 78 film directed by Castellari, which in and of itself was an unauthorized remake of the 1967 American film The Dirty Dozen, which is something that Italian filmmakers did a lot Sure, yes. with unauthorized remakes of horror movies, of popular movies. I know there's at least several... <laughs> 
Italian remakes of The Exorcist that are all unauthorized. It's just sort of a thing that happened. Directed by Antonio Margaretti. Yeah, he's a real uh, yeah. <laughs> guy that, that both Eli Roth and, and Tarantino like. Right. And Enzo Gorlami is <laughs> the real name of Enzo Castellari, gotcha. the, the yeah. director of the original Inglorious Bastards. Both Castellari and the star of that 78 film, Bo Svensson, make brief appearances in this film, the 2009 Inglorious Bastards. I could not really pick them out or tell you who they are, but they're sure. both in it somewhere. Okay. So yeah, let's get to it. The production and the longtime rumors. This was a film that Tarantino first mentioned to the press in 2001, and it reminded me a lot of the days of getting on my computer in my dorm room at school and checking sites like Ain't It Cool News. Oh, wow. The now disgraced Ain't yeah. It Cool News. And seeing all of the potential casting rumors. This was probably in between Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, so I was a few years later that I was first okay. reading about this movie. And one of the big casting rumors that has always been out there was Adam Sandler. I wow. remember when this movie finally got made and finding out that Sandler actually wasn't in it, and that was definitely yeah. a bummer. I, I always thought he was going to be in it. We'll get to which part shortly, but that was something that always struck me as like potentially very exciting. Wow, yeah, <laughs> no idea on that. Although it would have been like just another version of Sandler working with like these great directors. So yeah, Tarantino started working on it in 98, spent a decade on it could not figure out the ending kept writing and writing and writing there's a lot of stuff that ended up getting trimmed out but in the meantime he decided to abandon it for the moment to make the kill bill film which the weinsteins end up wanting to split into two parts and also like had to be like a huge undertaking on its own yeah and then got excited to make the grindhouse project with robert rodriguez so he makes death proof as part of that keeps putting it off, putting it off, and then finally comes back to it, overcomes his own self-pressure to write his masterpiece, and he ends up reconfiguring the script using his own film, Pulp Fiction, as a guide as to like how to trim this down. Okay. Obviously, Pulp Fiction is much more non-linear, so I don't think he was necessarily thinking in that sense, but just how to make this manageable. It was almost like Wonder Boys. <laughs> it was just too much. <laughs> yeah. Just kept writing and writing. And it's interesting, too, that this is a film about conversations and there's so much writing involved and a lot of people do consider it Tarantino's best script. I'm not sure that I 100% agree with that, but mm -hmm. it is a high point, certain elements of it at least, and the For way sure. that he's able to write it. And then when you actually watch the film, you're like, oh shit, only like 30% of this is in English, <laughs> which makes it all the more crazy because Tarantino is not fluent in German and French and all these other languages. Right. He just was able to put this all together. Well, I speak the most Italian, so I'll be your escort. Donovan speaks second most, so he'll be your Italian cameraman. Omar third most, so he'll be Donnie's assistant. I don't speak Italian. Like I said, third best. Tarantino originally sought Leonardo DiCaprio to be cast as Hans Landa before deciding to have the character played by a native German-speaking actor. Yeah, DiCaprio just seems like a weird fit, trying to picture that. Yeah, he is Italian. He would go on to be the villain in Django Unchained, although I kind of find that to be a underwhelming DiCaprio well, performance. I think you're definitely in the minority on that one. 
including on this podcast. Okay, I count as two. All right, <laughs> dude. That's, I think it's like one of his best. Really? I don't know. I, maybe it's just that character. I find him to be sort of lame. All right. Okay. I think a lot of people love that, but I I don't know. The role ultimately went to Austrian Christoph Waltz, who, according to Tarantino, quote, gave me my movie as he feared the part was unplayable. So then he recruits Brad Pitt because the two of them had wanted to work together for a number of years. We later find out that Brad Pitt reluctantly made his one movie with Harvey Weinstein, and it was this movie just to work with Tarantino okay. because he had hated Weinstein after the incident with Gwyneth Paltrow in the 90s. Right. I remember Tarantino on Howard Stern talking about hanging out at Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie's house. I, think I it was remember in like France or something. You telling me about this. Yeah, it was actually like the estate where Pink Floyd recorded Dark Side of the Moon wow. was like on their property. <laughs> And he talked about like smoking weed out of like a Coke can. I thought it even referring to it as hash. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Supposedly, that caused like a little bit of a riff with Angie, although they would stay married for a while. Yeah, longer, she was like, don't put this out there. Tarantino asked Adam Sandler to play the role of Donnie Donowitz. Oh, okay. And it's funny. I got to give credit to Lindsay. <laughs> we were watching this, and she's like, boy, it's so weird to see Eli Roth's name in the credits before like <laughs> other recognizable actors well they had just come off working together on grindhouse where eli roth acts in it and also directed one of the fake the, trailers yeah, right the less cool one yep <laughs> i think like the thanks killing one isn't that what's called thanks killing thanks killing yeah or is it just called thanksgiving thanks oh, killing might just, be a real yeah, movie yeah it's just thanksgiving yeah you're yeah, right yeah that one's like kind of lame the machete one obviously was awesome yeah and became a real movie and then the rob zombie one <laughs> Yeah, something <laughs> werewolves of the SS yeah. or whatever, yeah. Werewolf women of the SS yeah. or something. Yeah, that was like awesome. And Edgar Wright's was don't or whatever. I don't if even remember that If one. you're thinking about opening that door, don't. <laughs> but Sandler declined due to scheduling conflicts with the film Funny People. Wow. A movie that I kind of liked at the time. I'm pretty sure I would find it unbearable now. Uh, same. I also kind of liked it at the time. And was actually a big flop it cost a lot of money to make it was a big budget yeah Yeah, and it didn't really recoup that and it was a letdown for apatow at the time after coming off two huge hits so eli roth is cast instead he originally wanted simon pegg in the film as lieutenant archie hickox but he was forced to drop out due to scheduling conflicts with spielberg's tintin adaptation Hmm. yikes a lot of the things people did instead of this really a mistake yeah Tarantino talked to actress Natasha Kinski about playing the role of Bridget von Hammersmark and even flew to Germany to meet her, but they could never reach a deal. And then he ends up casting Diane Kruger instead, which had just came out recently on a podcast from Kruger that he did not want her. Okay. <laughs> and was like kind of not into it, but she had to like fight for the part. She was saying this more of like the typical stuff of how actors and actresses have to like fight for parts. Like sometimes. lobby. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it gets sensationalized because it's Tarantino and obviously because of the, the choking scene, which we'll get to later. Oh, sure. Which got brought up in its own controversy. But I think that she was saying that Tarantino had seen a movie of hers and didn't like it. And was so it was Troy? sort of like holding that against her, yeah. trying to imagine what movie that would have been. I know. Been. But he also thought Wicker she was Park. American, <laughs> which she's not. <laughs> he ends up being convinced to cast her. I think 
she was right for the part. I think same. She's good in it. I think we've already addressed our personal feelings on the film a lot. I'm still like reeling about the DiCaprio criticism for Django. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to get over it still. (laughs) No, I think that I'm sort of with you. I loved the movie when it first came out. I I don't think that it ever like dropped in my estimation, but I would agree that I was not like rushing to revisit it. Although I do think my dad rented it and I watched it with him. So I did watch it like shortly after it came out on DVD or, or something like that. Yeah. I took a lot of years off from watching it and I did buy the Blu ray during our kind of crazy run of going to exchanges all the time buying Blu-rays, but it was almost like a reluctant purchase. <laughs> I was like, you know oh what? God, I should, you're so dramatic. I should own this. I know. D- dude. I do, own a thousand d- movies worse than this. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Well, I don't know. It was a different time for me. Yes, now I'm buying like whatever, like whatever Charles Bronson movie from, you know, 1979. But at that time, the amount of haggling, the mental struggles over a $4 Blu-ray that I would go through. You remember? I I was like, it's not in a sleeve. I'm not getting it. (laughs) One thing that needs to be addressed, and we're going to sort of limit our discussion on this, but it should be brought up, is that although this film had an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, there was a strong pushback to it amongst a small but high-profile group of critics. A lot of Jewish film writers did not appreciate the film, thought it would, it made light of one of the worst, if not the worst, atrocities in right. world history, that they did not like turning the Jewish heroes of the film into characters that would behave no better than Nazis in the way that they conduct themselves. That is one thing. I mean, it's definitely a revenge movie, obviously, clear. But the bastards do seem... A little too over the top. Kind of, the scalping. Right. It's <laughs> unnecessary roughness, I would say. I, look, obviously, if you're a fan of Tarantino, you're going to cut him slack. And if you're not, then you're not going to. Right. And since we're fans, we tend to cut him slack. I do think that he approaches this stuff from a mindset that is so different from how a critic would or how people on Twitter would or just people who have different perspectives than his, which is that this is a fantasy that he revels yeah. in the revenge of it. Obviously we're all adults. We know that this is not real. This is not really what happened in world war two. He's changing it for entertainment's sake, which some people have a problem with. And I'm not going to sit here sure. and say that people are wrong for feeling like that, especially no. when you're talking about something as grave as, as world war two and the Holocaust and everything that goes along with it. But I do think that there is a naivete sometimes in the way that he approaches it. I agree. And I think there's a, a spirit for which it's intended thing. If you can't get past that, I think that's okay, too. That's certainly your prerogative. But I do think that sometimes intent can be factored. And I like to believe that there is no ill will intended here. Yeah, and I think if you're willing to go along with him on his journey as a filmmaker, and then you see that he makes Django Unchained, which addresses slavery. And then you see that he makes once upon a time in Hollywood, which addresses the Manson murders. And he basically takes a swing at those three things to give like this cathartic release and whether or not you can go with it and feel that cathartic feeling of this feels great to just sort of play in this arena. It's not real. But wouldn't it be fucking cool to kill Hitler this way? Wouldn't it be cool 
if a slave could get revenge this way, wouldn't it be cool if we stopped the Manson family from killing Sharon Tate this way? You know what I mean? It's just a thought experiment. I think that sometimes people that write about film and, and critics of films do tend to get lost in like everything has to be taken so seriously. And I get it. The pushback immediately to what I just said would be like, well, it's the Holocaust. But I think Tarantino's coming from it like, well, Hitler is the worst human being ever. He's my villain. I'm going to kill him in a fun way. And I think a lot of people went along with it. But yeah, as we've said, I think sure. I can get on board with, with not seeing it that way and just thinking that this is not something that should be treated so cartoonish that a non-Jewish filmmaker should not be doing stuff like this. And that when you compare it to other World War II films or other films that, that deal in this world, there's much more of a gravity to it. Oh, yeah. The stakes feel more real in, like, Saving Private Ryan or something like that. Band of Brothers. Yeah. Whew. That this is a different thing. But Tarantino did not invent this playing in World War II. A lot no. of the stuff that came before, it just wasn't as mainstream, not as big of a budget. For sure. But obviously there's a whole... I mean, I think Nazi exploitation. Absolutely. I mean, I think we see that in his career, which is, again, why you talk about the spirit of which it's intended, because we're now on a series of things. You know, we could we go from like Kill Bill and Glorious Bastards. We go on to like him making like spaghetti Western things. I mean, a lot of these different grindhouse style exploitation type movies worked in these genres that I'm sure to some degree he grew up watching as a cinephile. One of the things that you sort of lose track of sometimes when you're thinking about this film or even watching it for the first time or, or whatever, is that it ultimately boils down to dueling plots to kill Hitler. Sometimes you kind of forget that. I don't know that Shoshana's plan necessarily is thinking that Hitler is going to be there or whatever. You're never really sure if she even knows. But that's ultimately what happens. Is that There's these two plots that converge at where a movie theater That's of right. course yep <laughs> one of the plans of course uses film as an actual <laughs> weapon to end world war ii right going back to tarantino's obsession with this script it, it ultimately and what you were saying about your expectations as to what was going to happen in the movie it ultimately becomes let's fight world war ii through elaborate conversations right. yes <laughs> like sort wouldn't like that be great tense scenes yeah and Tarantino's betting on himself. He's basically saying, I don't need to have these big action sequences or battle sequences because I'm going to create so much tension through conversations. And I think that he's successful right off the bat. Yeah. Would you say the budget was on this? Like 70 million? Yeah. It really does feel like a big movie, but it's mostly limited sets. Now I think 70 million in 2009 was, was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously it was up against Avatar for Best Oof, Picture. Yeah. But it was also up against the Hurt Locker for Best Picture that right. year. And up in the air. It was an interesting year. That yeah, it year. was. Sure was. Gorlami. Okay, chapter one, Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France, 1941. So to build on what you were just saying, Tarantino definitely was considering this as much of a spaghetti western as a war film. And right. That's pretty clear right off the bat with the music choices, with the way that this opening sequence is shot, the way it looks. And he considered titling the film Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France. Wow. I think he made the right choice. Yeah. That The Inglorious Bastards is such like a a wild title. Where it's you're definitely just like, a, what? a grabs you. 
Yeah, you immediately like, want to okay, know what, what does this yeah. mean? <laughs> what can we say about the opening sequence of this film? It's a Hall of Fame introduction to a movie by itself, its own perfect little short film, perfectly executed, and it's among Tarantino's favorite things he's ever written. It's unbelievable. I, this is just one of those moments that I'll always really remember being in the theater and seeing this scene. It was just this palpable feeling. SS Stendartenfuhrer Hans Landa. And again, you know, this movie is starting off and you're like, okay, we know Brad Pitt's in this. No idea going into this how this is all going to play out. And then it just starts with all these people that you don't know who they are. Arrives on the farm of Perrier Le Petit in Wait, search of a Jewish family, the how, Dreyfuses. How great of a casting is, is this dude? This well, he wanted Jean Reno. Wait, well, he seems like a Jean Reno. Yeah. Right? As soon as I saw that, yeah, yeah. I was like, yep, okay, yeah. I get what he was going for. But, <laughs> but it's I, better that it's a guy you no, don't know. I know, but and like this guy just is so tired, so visibly like carrying the weight of this thing. Yeah, because this has obviously been going on for years, yeah, yeah. and it's just become this whole thing. And even at the end of the scene where he's like defeated and kind of like gives it up, he just has no energy to like carry this on anymore. Yeah, so the Lepidites, we don't really see a mother in the mix, but there's three daughters, one of which is Leah Sidhu. Ooh, how much does that stand out? Yeah, <laughs> just an unbelievable looking person. Wow, obviously when I saw this movie, I had no idea who Leah Sidhu was, but obviously she's the only actress of the daughters that I recognize. But I kind of feel like she stands out even more than that. I feel like I recognized her, but probably because she was like topless in the in American Apparel okay. modeling or something. <laughs> yeah, you knew her from that. You were I like, felt like I knew that face. If you and I had seen this together, you would have been nudging me, being like, American it? Apparel. <laughs> Check. I'm going to Google it. I'll show you. <laughs> we just talked about this not that long ago about it. Malin Ackerman oh, right. being yeah. in the Abercrombie and Fitch <laughs> catalogs like nude. Remember, like, there was just like nude people in enclosed catalog for like a minute i remember it well actually american apparel definitely tried to copy off of abercrombie and fitch for a minute and i'm pretty sure leah cedu was one of the chicks okay just so everyone knows (laughs) (laughs) but yeah she definitely stands out now yeah yeah who she is check out the french dispatch just for her if you can (laughs) but yeah this such a an unbelievably executed scene. It's just this slow, patient buildup of tension and anticipation. Even in the language thing is a big part of the movie overall, but the weaving in and out of the languages and there being like a reason for that. This is the American introduction to Christoph Waltz, which we, we sort of touched on already. It's a tour de force performance from start to finish. Even the people that didn't particularly like the film and their reviews That's pointed right. him out, he seemed like a... lock it in, guaranteed to get Best Supporting Actor, which he did. I remember it was like one of those sure thing years, which it it does always seem like with the supporting actor role, there's always one. Well, he had won everything up till the Oscars, so there was just no way. And I remember watching several of his speeches. It was like Christian Bale and the Fighter, too. It was a little bit strange that he won it for Django. Not that I think he's bad in it, but it just was weird that... He won back to back for Tarantino film. Well, not back to back years, but right. two Tarantino films in a row. He's winning Best Supporting Actor. It was kind of strange. Kind of bringing the same type of presence to the a little bit Django role, but that's sort of his yeah, his shtick. Yeah, that's his move. Right. Like that's what he does. Landa essentially invites himself inside of Lapidite's home as he suspects the Dreyfuses 
are hiding underneath the floorboards. And while they're just talking at the table, the way that this is confirmed, eventually confirmed to the viewer, is a great touch because we sense that there's tension. We can sense like a reluctance from Lapidite to engage in this. Yeah. But we don't know exactly what's going on. And the camera, as they're talking, just slowly pans down as like a, a side cut view right. beneath their feet to, to reveal the basement and the, the, the family hiding underneath. And as you mentioned, they switch to English. Which Tarantino does like a very smart thing here. He's able to make it make sense. I think the first time that I saw this, I was like, okay, so they they wanted to start out in the foreign language, and now they're switching just to make it easier for everyone, right. like the viewer yeah, yeah. and for Tarantino to write it and everything. I thought it was all for show because I hadn't seen the rest of the film yet and didn't know that they right. went back to these other languages a lot. And then you realize... Like there's a specific reason he's taking a bet that the Dreyfuses don't speak English. That's right, and so he can it, talk freely right above them. And it kind of leads to how the entire scene ends up playing out. Monsieur Lapetit, are you aware of the nickname the people of France have given me? I have no interest in such things. But you're aware of what they call me. I'm aware. What are you aware of? Did they call you the Jonta? Precisely. I understand your trepidation in repeating it. Heidrich apparently hates the moniker the good people of Prague have bestowed on him. Actually, why he would hate the name The Hangman's baffling to me. It would appear he's done everything in his power to earn it. I, on the other hand, love my unofficial title precisely because I've earned it. The feature that makes me such an effective hunter of the Jews is, as opposed to most German soldiers, I can think like a Jew, where they can only think like a German. <laughs> More precisely, a German soldier. <laughs> Now, if one were to determine what attribute the German people share with a beast, it would be the cunning and the predatory instinct of a hawk. But if one were to determine what attributes the Jews share with a beast, it would be that of the rat. The, the Führer and Goebbels' propaganda have said pretty much the same thing. But where our conclusions differ is I don't consider the comparison an insult. Consider for a moment the world a rat lives in. It's a hostile world indeed. If a rat were to scamper through your front door right now, would you greet it with hostility? I suppose I would. Has a rat ever done anything to you to create this animosity you feel toward them? Rats spread disease to bite people. Rats were the cause of the bubonic plague, but that's some time ago. I propose to you any disease a rat could spread, a squirrel could equally carry. Would you agree? Right. Yet I assume you don't share the same animosity with squirrels that you do with rats, do you? No. Yet they're both rodents, are they not? And except for the tail, they even rather look alike, don't they? It's an interesting thought, Herr Colonel. 
However interesting as the thought may be, it makes not one bit of difference to how you feel. If a rat were to walk in here right now as I'm talking, would you greet it with a source of your delicious milk? Probably not. I didn't think so. You don't like them. You don't really know why you don't like them. All you know is you find them repulsive. Consequently, a German soldier conducts a search of a house suspected of hiding Jews. Where does the hawk look? He looks in the barn, he looks in the attic, he looks in the cellar, he looks everywhere he would hide. But there's so many places it wouldn't have occurred to a hawk to hide. However, the reason the Führer's brought me off my Alps in Austria and placed me in French cow country today is because it does occur to me. Because I'm aware of what tremendous feats human beings are capable of once they abandon dignity. There's some wild shit that used to go on too. Like, we learned that Landa, Hans Landa, is also known as the Jew Hunter. Mm-hmm. And there used to be like teaser posters with like character posters for different characters and stuff. And I'm pretty sure there was like a poster that said like the Jew Hunter on it. Yeah. It's a, it a was lot a of wild time. shit going on with this. Meanwhile, in Germany and Austria, where like use of the swastika is sort of like banned from everything, although right. it, it art does get like kind of a free pass, but they like obscured it and stuff. And like you couldn't even really use swastikas in the promotion of this film. Mm. But then in America, there's like the Jew hunter. I don't know. Merchandising is just a weird thing. Obviously, things have changed a bit since then. But I don't know. It just feels like if you could put it on a poster, we would. In exchange for the Nazis not murdering his family, Lapidit tearfully confirms where the Dreyfuses are hiding. Soldiers shoot through the floorboards, killing all but one of the family. Oh, yeah. Shoshana, played by Melanie Laurent. The Dreyfus's daughter escapes. And an iconic finale to the scene with uh, him just yelling, Au revoir, Shoshana! Yeah, I guess you could speculate as to what he's thinking. It seems like there's plenty of time for someone to go to that door and shoot her. But do they not see her at first? And then, like, okay, there she is. And then he just goes himself. And then he almost, like, makes the decision to just, like, let her go out of like fun yeah in his I well, mean, like twisted fun the build to it you're definitely thinking all right this guy's a badass the way that he just engineered this whole thing and then he pulls out this little pistol or walther or whatever they call him and he kind of pulls it up like he's scoping her on this little handgun yeah you know and you, but you are like totally believing this guy's gonna nail this shot. I feel like every time I watch it, I can't remember if he even takes a shot or not, which no, he does not. Right. But I always think like, does he shoot and miss or but no, he just waits and waits and waits and then doesn't shoot her. I don't know what you're supposed to make of that, to be honest. He doesn't think that she's like a threat and he's just not that worried about it, I guess. But Or right, he likes the chase. It is weird though, because it doesn't really fit in with his character to just let there be a loose end and that be the end of it. That's why I'm uh, I almost think that he's like I I'm going to catch her. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's something that gets more fleshed out in the longer version of the script cuz he never yeah. really mentions her. We need anything. to see that full original version. Well, there's no mention of her ever again by him. That's right. It's never brought up. There's nothing about his character. Well, that's cuz this was just like another day for him. Well, I know, but how many times was he letting someone run away? Yeah, though? I know. That's true. 
there is one moment, and we'll talk about it when we get and he's, there. You're right. He's so thorough. I mean, he knows these names and everything. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that brings us to chapter two in Glorious Bastards. So sometime later. And this scene was basically the trailer. <laughs> this was like the first trailer. Yeah, the teaser know? trailer had a lot of this part in it. Lieutenant Aldo Rain, played by Brad Pitt, recruits Jewish American soldiers to the Bastards, a commando unit formed to instill fear among Nazis by killing and scalping them behind enemy lines. They include Sergeant Donnie the Bear Jew Donowitz, played by Eli Roth, Sergeant Hugo Stiglitz, played by Till Schwager, Mm. a rogue German soldier, and Corporal Wilhelm Wicke, who sort of operates as an interpreter that's right for the bastards also among the ranks bj novak shocking from the office really just like a bunch of nerdy dudes in this outfit paul sam rust levine. yeah sam levine yeah i guess from freaks and geeks yeah i guess that's why tarantino cast him he like freaks and geeks a lot oh wow i don't really like bj novak <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of bums me out that he's in this movie yeah yeah it seems like Someone cooler should be in it. Yeah, I know what you mean. In Germany, Adolf Hitler himself interviews a German soldier, Private Butts, the only survivor of a bastard attack. Sort of a rough last name if you're going to be a private in the army. So you become known as Private Butts. Yeah, a lot of jokes at your expense, I'd say. That would be a rough Maybe it doesn't translate in German, though. Nah. Butts reveals that Aldo Rain carved a swastika into his forehead to ensure he'll forever be branded a Nazi even after the war's end. Yeah, that seems like a rough thing to carry around. He conveniently does not reveal that he shared Nazi military information with the bastards, and that's the real reason he was allowed to live. Yeah, I think you can understand why he would withhold that information. No, I know. (laughs) From his superiors. Yeah, the whole introduction of Donnie Donowitz is insane. Oh, I know. It's Something that you're not given in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, for example. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood saves the violence. I know. In fact, you almost forget you're watching a Tarantino movie this at a was, certain point. Uh, this is like, we're going to give you something so shocking hard, right away. Hard to look at, really. And even before Donnie emerges from the tunnel with the baseball bat, these guys just so callously scalping these dudes. The, yeah. the one scalping, the first one that you see is pretty graphic. Yeah, it's gross. The sound is gross. Yeah, yeah. It's tough. Yeah, I guess Tarantino would tell Eli Roth that they were going to film his scene, this big scene, and get him all ready and then not do it. He did it like for a couple days in a row okay. to just get him like out of his skin. And then finally does it, so he comes out like just a complete lunatic. I mean, the build to it is so great, but then... like. When he actually takes the first swing of that bat, it's almost you have to like look away. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's that bad. No. It's, I mean, it's clearly a dummy. Well, yeah. <laughs> they didn't actually hit anyone with a bat. <laughs> <laughs> actually, no, they did. They actually killed yeah. someone for this movie. Hear that? Yes. Sergeant Donnie Donowitz. You might know him better by his nickname, the Bear Jew. Have you heard Aldo the Patch? You got heard about the Bear Jew? I heard of the Bear Jew. 
What'd you hear? Beats German soldiers with the club. He bashes the brains in with a baseball bat, what he does. And Werner, I'm gonna ask you one last goddamn time. If you still respectfully refuse, I'm calling the bear Jew over. He's gonna take that big bat of his, and he's gonna beat your ass to death with it. Take your wiener schnitzel, lick your finger, and point out on this map what I want to know. Fuck you. And your Jew dogs! <laughs> Actually, we're all tickled to hear you say that. Quite frankly, watching Donnie beat Nazis to death is as close as we ever get to going to the movies. Donnie! Yeah! Guy's German here wants to die for country. Oblige him. I do think that the horrific violence is tempered by Eli Roth's ridiculous Boston accent and his I know very limited feeling that baseball is, knowledge. It's where you're silly. Just like, yeah. Does he know anything about baseball? It Knocks feels it weird. out of the park. <laughs> Teddy fucking ball game. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. All right. That actually kind of stinks. You are reminded, though, that Eli Roth, for a film director, is fucking cut. Like, he's huge-looking. Absolutely. Muscular. And you know what? I'm not going to say a bad thing about his performance, because sometimes you forget Eli Roth, friend of the show. Yeah, he actually did listen to our podcast yeah. one time. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably the... Well, I was going to go ahead and say it. He's at least confirmed the most famous person that's ever listened. Who knows? I'm sure, like, DiCaprio or Lady Gaga has checked it out, but, <laughs> but yeah. far, as far as a confirmed listen, yeah, they didn't off tops. They didn't tweet about it. God, we were, like, so excited. We were like, his wife, 
Lorenzo Izzo at the time probably listened to it. I know. Even though almost a guarantee. Who's actually the most famous person that's listened to it. <laughs> Maybe they told on it. Yeah, because he was listening to our podcast on like a stereo system, not like on like earbuds or something. Not having to skip over like our horrible introduction where you're like crying about the Oscars they because were like they announced the wrong winner. Having like a knock knock reunion party at his house, like <laughs> all around the pool, like listening to that episode. Ana de Armas there. <laughs> yeah, she was like, these guys sound cute. <laughs> God, we're lame. <laughs> Samuel L. Jackson narration. Once upon a time in greatest moments. So Jackson in the mix. That's right. Managed to get him in still. Chapter three, German night in Paris, 1944. We learn that Shoshana Dreyfus is in hiding living in Paris and operating a cinema under the name Emmanuel Mamou. And, uh, you know, you and I talked, again, a little bit before the show, but we didn't get too far into this. The first time I ever saw this, I wasn't as invested in the Shoshana storyline. Now, oh, for it, me, it's like the whole movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It makes the movie. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I do love that, despite the fact that Tarantino is writing a film that he can't do his usual pop culture references or at least expected ones he still does it but it's just the (laughs) most dorky cinephile like history of german film history of french film what the kid is that one of the movies they're yeah the chaplin film yeah yeah he's he's mentioning different like gw paps like different german directors different german actresses and actors there's multiple gw paps references because one of the names on the cards in the bar. Too. Yeah, and it's also one of the books that Fassbender's character yeah, yeah. wrote or something like that. But yeah, I loved like even okay, so a young German soldier named Frederick Zoller starts sniffing around, getting ideas, <laughs> trying to talk to Shoshana, and he makes a comment that she must really love film or something. It's like, yeah, well, I run a theater, dude. But like because he's like, Well, you put the name of the director on the marquee even though you don't have to. And she's like, in France, we respect directors. That's like, there's right. a lot of shit like that where you're like, oh, God. <laughs> like, you just know Tarantino is so pleased with himself for yeah. that. Although I was pleased with him, too. <laughs> it will turn out that Zoller is a sniper famed for killing 250 Allied soldiers in battle, which is a ridiculous story. But it is sort of based on an actual American yeah. soldier. And, Insane body count. And that American soldier would go on to play himself in a movie in the 50s. So okay. it wasn't like immediate like yeah, the yeah. German propaganda films, but it's sort of based in reality a little bit that stuff like this has happened. In this little like montage moments of like Zoller trying to like talk to Shoshana like at the cafe, different stuff, I was just, just like- really. How- Getting shut down consistently. I was like, how fucking cool is Shoshana, though? I mean, Absolutely. She's got her hat and her book. Yeah. <laughs> she owns and operates a movie theater. The part when she kind of gets forced to go meet the director and Hans shows up in that the scene. Direct- you mean Joseph Goebbels? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the second <laughs> Sorry, I thought the dir- famous Nazi. Yeah. Wait, well, did he direct the movie in this? No, thing? he okay. didn't. Well, so not the- I don't know what they're saying. They don't ever make it clear. He didn't. Re- he did like produce and okay. was involved in like I- the German propaganda stuff. I thought but I don't they think were... he really directed stuff. Okay, I thought they were saying he directed Nation's Pride. They sort of imply that, so maybe they're just saying that. But okay, I don't yeah. know. I got the feeling he was more of like a producer. Okay, 
All right, sorry. But I don't know. But in that scene, when she's sitting at that table, I think she's the coolest woman I've ever seen. Yeah, I feel that way the whole movie. Okay, all right. <laughs> so she's talking to Zoller, and then he's got this celebrity, and I think he thinks under normal circumstances that maybe this celebrity could be good. He's trying to like play it off, like, oh, you know, this thing that happened. And in this sense, it's like a double-edged sword because obviously the audience knows. Right that Shoshana is not going to be into this. No. But he thinks that he can still convince a French woman to be into it, even though Germany is occupying France. Hoping against hope. Sure. I've had some of those moments in my life. I think he has seen other French women sort of go down this road and be able to be convinced because of the times and just the circumstances. I'm not judging anybody, but I think stuff like that happened, that you would get French girlfriends and... Even though you were kind of the enemy, people probably just saw it as a way to survive or, you know, whatever. Right, right. So he's thinking that it's something like that where it's possible. We know as the audience it's impossible. Yeah, this is never happening. So then he's telling her the story of his war exploits and just the way of revealing the number where he's like, I killed 70 whatever the first day. Yeah, I know. And then 150 the second day. Oh, some great face acting from... Melanie Laurent. Yes, Melanie Laurent. She does it a lot. Yeah, that's her right. whole deal in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of eye stuff. Whoa, yeah. When he reveals how many it is the second day, there's definitely a big face acting moment. It turns out that Zoller stars in a Nazi propaganda film called Nation's Pride, produced by none other than Joseph Goebbels himself. So I put produced. That was my okay. own note. All right, yeah. That's probably right. It's never really clear, but yeah. yeah. I think you could say... Directed. I, c- I actually just looked up him up on IMDb. Okay. Joseph Goebbels. Yeah, yeah. And he was like credited as like writing some stuff, and he's credited as himself appearing in like probably propaganda films right, or right. history films I as guess, like a person in like documentaries. But I was probably making some assumptions too, or picking up on things that might not be there just because he's so invested in what this premiere is going to be like, you know, in this theater and everything. And yeah. that, you know, so that strikes me as the director. But he's like basically in charge of Nazi propaganda, right. which is like a big thing during the war. And so, yeah, I could see him sort of like staging these events right. to just Makes sort sense. of rally yeah. the troops. Because you have to understand that, you know, it's such Please a- Please explain it to me. It's a big undertaking to sure. convince people of a country to be <laughs> like this. Yeah. It has to be constant- brainwashing going on i would imagine i'm is sure one, yeah that's one way of phrasing it and but the propaganda stuff plays into that and so it all has to be done a certain way and presented a certain way but the stakes of the premiere of nation's pride are unique and there's something that that tarantino doesn't really like bash you over the head with there's just one like little throwaway line later that will sort of explain the situation in a way that puts it in a historical context and and sort of can frame how the viewer would would feel about what happens at the end of the film. Okay. Initially, Shoshana, of course, is not very impressed, but as Germany is occupying France, the Nazis are running the show, and since Zoller is infatuated with Shoshana, he ultimately convinces Goebbels to hold the premiere at her theater, so they abduct her and bring her to that bizarre lunch scene with Goebbels, and then Julie Dreyfus from Kill Bill is playing Francesca Mondino. By the way, several viewings, I think, passed for me without 
realizing or connecting that the dude that picks her up at the theater is then that German soldier. Yeah, Hellstrom. In the bar. Right. Yeah, Hellstrom yeah. shows up later in, yeah, the, yeah. in the bar scene. Yeah, he's just in this like little moment. So Julie Dreyfus is playing Goebbels' interpreter. There's like that little sex moment, which is so weird. Yeah. Also kind of hot. Tarantino's films are like very non-sexual for the most I, part. I was actually weirdly talking about that with Lindsay because because <laughs> she made a comment about it, but I was like, actually, there's almost like no sex scenes in his movies overall. Pulp Fiction, notably, there is. But well, a rape scene is not yeah, the same. Right. Thing as a sex no, scene. I know. I guess that was. A... There's Bridget Fonda and De Niro in Jackie Brown, but that's like very that comedic. One, played for laughs, yeah, and fast, and then. I would say that like there is a sexuality to the Sharon Tate character, but not overt, and there's no scenes of it right. really. But he does sort of do the slow pan across her body when she's like sleeping. True. I mean, just covered, but so you know what I mean. In this one, the way it's kind of shot, this is just like Shoshana thinking about it. I think so. You're right. But I think she's right. And yeah, she yeah, just, yeah. She just knows immediately what the deal is. Right, here, right. By the way that they're acting, we were. Talking off mic, I love Julie Dreyfus in Kill Bill and this movie, although she doesn't have like a big part in this movie. And I'm always surprised to look at her IMDb and see that she just like really was not in a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's a big miss by us as a society. Well, it just it's weird because when you watch Kill Bill or you watch Inglorious Bastards, her name is always at the beginning of the movie as if she's like a star of the movie. That's right. And you're like, this must be somebody that we don't know in America. Yeah. I'm like Julia Louis Dreyfus. <laughs> Yeah, the name is similar enough to make you think. So this scene, you have Shoshana at a table with Zoller, Goebbels, Francesca, the interpreter. Is Hellstrom stay? I can't remember. I don't know. I feel like he's Nazi people hanging around. It's it's this another wild scene of ever present danger, just ramping up, where we know who she is. Her life is always on the line with these things. She has to play it cool, and I think that. Laurent does like a great job with like her face where you know that she's like inwardly yeah. panicking but keeping it together on I the surface. No idea the amount of digging that needs to happen for her true identity to be revealed. You know what I mean? What is the full deal with this aunt and uncle character? You I don't know. know. We don't really know the whole story because at one point she refers to the previous owner as Mrs. Mamu or something. Right, right. As if she just took this identity. Yeah, yeah. And it, the whole thing with her, that being her aunt is not true. Right. It's sort of unexplained what the story exactly. is. Exactly, yeah. And that's I'm always, I was always kind of wondering, like, how close to unraveling is it at any point? I mean, she's clearly anxious about it. <laughs> that's noticeable. When she lets out that giant gasp after Hans exits the scene. Well, yeah, I mean, the cat's out of the bag. As she's sitting there amongst the Nazis, things get even more fucked up. Right. When the man who killed her family, Hans Landa, shows up, and then in a strange, it works, but a strange moment, everyone just conveniently leaves except for her and Landa. Although I thought he was the, insistent on it. I, he needed a, yeah, but a it, word it, with Did her. it need to be private, though? I guess Goebbels, there's some reason he's leaving. Yeah, and then, but what's his fit? Zoller? Yeah. He is, like, uneasy about leaving. He doesn't want to leave her there. Yeah, I guess he's probably thinking that Hans Landa will say no. 
yeah, that's yeah. probably just all he's thinking. Sure. He's like, he's going to say no and squash my plans. Well, plus, I mean, any let's second be, away from Shoshana he's is not throwing a, a fake party. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's what all this really is. <laughs> he's like, how can I stay connected to Sh- Well, he thinks yeah. to, what I, does he think? Emmanuel. Right. He just never really call her by her name. Her name, her fake name just sort of. She's just the girl that works at the theater, the French girl. Yeah, you know. how, he's like, how can I stay connected? Right. I'm going to get my big movie premiere where I'm the star. Yeah. He's always like, what's her name again? I, the girl that w- runs the theater. So Goebbels, Francesca, and Zoller depart, leaving Shoshana alone with Landa. Mm-hmm. And I really wish that this was in English so that we could use a clip here because it's one of the best scenes. Christoph Waltz is just like out of his mind. It's just so weird. He's talking about this strudel and then he's like wait for the cream oh, and I he's know. not doing it in english but you get it like I, he's like wait for I the always, cream right i always picture it that way i always picture it in my head wait for the cream and the entire time that they're talking about the theater and he's yeah. he's basically interrogating her she's and on the verge of tears we it's feel a total it. freak out as the audience you feel the interrogation because you know the truth and you're like he's digging at something like he knows but how would he know well, okay, Landa, acting as head of security for the premiere, interrogates Shoshana, who manages to keep her cool and maintain her cover, and then he eventually departs the scene, and then, as you said, it's just such a powerful little moment, that gasp, where yeah, she's right. just, like, so scared, but she she made it through the scene, like, he leaves, and then it all comes out in that moment, so... I don't know. You could read a lot into it if you want to. Landa's choice of food for Shoshana is symbolic and another way to test the girl and play psychological games with her. It depends on how much you think he either knows or suspects or he's wondering about. The glass of milk that he orders for her is a callback to La Padite's farm where Landa drank milk and That's Shoshana's right. family died. Because it is weird that he orders something different for himself and then he makes it a point to say milk for her. Absolutely. And then as for the strudel, during World War II, it would likely have been made from pork lard, which is not kosher. That sounds appetizing. And therefore not allowed by Jewish dietary laws. Okay. It actually probably is fucking delicious, if we're being honest. (laughs) Pork lard. (laughs) Well, what do you think tastes good? No, I know. Like, Like, what do you think's in like a ho-ho? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Some kind of lard, usually. So, yeah, he's testing by ordering something he thinks that she wouldn't eat if she's Jewish. Right. I don't know if he thinks that she's specifically Shoshana. That might just be a touch for us, the audience. Right, like right. The director yeah. and, is writing he that is, in. But he is just he's sizing her up. Yeah, he's yeah, testing right. out what she does and how she reacts to things. Because he's always on alert. See, for me, it would have just been a, a very quick test. One look at her and I'm like, she's good. She's cool. There's a lot <laughs> about his character that... As two non-Jewish people talking, it uh-huh. feels uncomfortable to even like bring up. Oh, okay, yeah. That's yeah. how like real his character is. You know, when he's talking about in the opening scene, like thinking like a hawk versus a rat, right? And all that right. Stuff, you're yeah. Just like Jesus Christ, and it's so horrible and offensive, and yet it also conveys to you how serious he takes his job. Tarantino wants us to understand that he is the best at finding people that he's the best at what he does, as despicable as it may be. Absolutely. And so it's three years later. Whatever he thought of Shoshana, he probably just let that go. But 
he's always on alert. So even if he's not thinking of Shoshana, he's always yeah. like, playing at something here. So Shoshana, once her theater has been approved for this exclusive Nazi film premiere, plots with her lover and projectionist Marcel to set the cinema ablaze <laughs> during the screening, killing the Nazi leaders in attendance. But the plan, unless I have this wrong, was always that they would die as part of this too, right? Not necessarily. Okay. All right. I, I think that they were locking them into just, the Okay. But they weren't going to necessarily be in there. I see. They would have still been able to get out if things had gone well. I I assume that Marcel lives at the end of this film. Yeah, I guess the fact that he's like behind the screen, I always pictured it. Yeah, but as, there's probably like another exit you're right, or something. Yeah. I'm assuming. We don't ever know. The way that it plays out at the end it almost seems like everybody's on a suicide mission. Yeah. So Chapter four of the film. We know Tarantino loves his chapters. Operation Kino. Unbeknownst to Shoshana, there is a separate plot being put into motion that involves this very same film premiere. It says here that you speak German fluently. Like a cat and jammer kid. And your occupation before the war? I'm a film critic. List your accomplishments. Well, sir. Such as they are, I write reviews and articles for a publication called Films and Filmmakers. And I've had two books published. Impressive. Well, don't be modest, Lieutenant. What are their titles? The first book was called Art of the Eyes, the Heart and the Mind, a study of German cinema in the 20s. And the second one was called 24 Frame Da Vinci. It's a subtextual film criticism study of the work of German director G.W. Pabst. What should we drink to, sir? Well, um, down with Hitler. All the way down, sir. Yes. Are you familiar with German cinema under the Third Reich? Yes. Obviously, I haven't seen any of the films made in the last three years, but I'm familiar with it. Explain it to me. Pardon, sir? This little escapade of ours requires a knowledge of the German film industry under the Third Reich. Explain to me Ufa under Goebbels. Goebbels considers the films he's making to be the beginning of a new era in German cinema, an alternative to what he considers the Jewish-German intellectual cinema of the 20s and the Jewish-controlled dogma of Hollywood. How's he doing? Frightfully so, is that? Once again? You say he wants to take on the Jews at their own game. Well, compared to, say, Louis B. Mayer, how's he doing? Quite well, actually. Since Goebbels has taken over, film attendance has steadily risen in Germany over the last eight years. But Louis B. Mayer wouldn't be Goebbels' proper opposite number. I believe Goebbels sees himself closer to David O. Selznick. Brief him. Lieutenant Hickox, at this point in time, I'd like to brief you on Operation Keenair. Three days from now, Joseph Goebbels is throwing a gala premiere for one of his new movies in Paris. What film, sir? The motion picture's called Nation's Pride. In attendance at this joyous, germatic occasion will be Goebbels, Goering, Bormann, and most of the German high command, including all high-ranking officers of both the SS and the Gestapo, as well as luminaries of the Nazi propaganda film industry. The master race at play, eh? 
Basically, we have all our rotten eggs in one basket. The objective of Operation Kino? Blow up the basket. And like the snows of yesteryear, gone from this earth. Jolly good, sir. An American Secret Service advocate that lives deep behind enemy lines will be your assist. The Germans call them the bastards. The bastards? Oh. Never heard of them. The whole point of the Secret Service, old boy, you not hearing of them. But the Jerrys have heard of them. Because these Yanks have been then the devil. You'll be dropped into France, about 24 kilometers outside of Paris. The bastards will be waiting for you. First thing, you'll go to a little village called Nadine. In Nadine, there's a tavern called La Louisienne. There you'll rendezvous with our double agent. She'll take it from there. She's the one who's going to get you into the premier. It will be you, her, and two German-born members of the Bastards. She's also made all the other arrangements you're going to need. How will I know her? I suspect that won't be too much trouble for you. Your contact is Bridget von Hammersmark. Bridget von Hammersmark? The German movie star is working for England. Yes, for the last two years now. One could even say that Operation Kino was her brainchild. Indeed. Got the gist? I think so, sir. Paris when it sizzles. We meet British Commando Lieutenant Archie Hickox, played by Michael Fassbender, who we can talk about for a minute here. Fassbender yeah. auditioned for... Hans Landa like five times and was trying desperately to get the part. Yeah, which I didn't know until you revealed that to me. I don't know what it is that prevented that from happening. Maybe he doesn't speak French. I'm wondering if that's what it is. That's like a whole different character trying to picture Fassbender doing it. I mean, Fassbender's a great actor. You know, yeah, I'm... you almost wonder if he's, for the tone of this film, if he's yeah. too sinister. Yeah, well, I kind of think that, well, Not like, that, there's this weird... Know quirkiness to Christoph Waltz and even like going back to that opening scene and this is again I think you got to credit Tarantino for this because it's this tense brooding scene but this kind of weird quirky guy who's saying like dark things but then he like pulls out this like ridiculous cartoony pipe yeah but it works it's weird because I'm wondering if if it was Fassbender, if that makes the movie less offensive to some people because it treats it more seriously. If it, I'm wondering if the goofy shit, because it's making the audience laugh. I think Tarantino probably intends it to laugh at the person, yeah. but is it detracting from the gravity of the situation by having you laugh at the big pipe or the right. way that Christoph Waltz laughs later in the movie? Yeah, or yeah. His or even like the how giddy he is over the strudel and the cream. Or saying that's a bingo yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. Right. I don't know. I don't know. It would have definitely changed Fassbender's career. We would have never known Christoph Waltz, likely. Right. Unless Tarantino discovered but, him for something I else. I mean, things definitely took off for Fassbender pretty quickly after this. Yeah, oddly, he was in Fish Tank the same year, the Andrea yeah, Arnold film. That's right. Which I love, but was not going to ever make him a mainstream I still star. don't watch that yet, but I do love Andrea Arnold. Yeah, it's great. And he was in the Steve McQueen film Hunger, which was like his introduction to the film world. Obviously, a lot of people going to see Inglorious Bastards in 2009 were not familiar with that film. Absolutely. So in a lot of ways, he was just as brand new as Christoph Waltz to a lot of people. But his part is a lot smaller. Yeah, right. I know. I mean, we were sitting here watching this and like Mike Myers is the big star in this scene. I actually think Fassbender's performance is insanely good. 
when you think about what oh, yeah. he does later in the film because he has to like almost reverse engineer his real life to be <laughs> right. this character yeah. and playing in with the accents and everything that he does. We'll get to the bar scene and work our way through it, but his like last few lines and his delivery of them are so great. Like he is so cool in, in his last moments before that gunfight. So what I was saying was that Fassbender's performance as Hickox is layered with irony because Fassbender himself was actually born in Germany to German and Irish parents and then raised in Ireland and now residing in London with fluency in German as his first language, Gaelic as his second, that English like as his third. like it could be like a Morrissey song. Also with a mastery of English accents and dialects. But here in the film, he plays an Englishman who goes undercover as a German and can speak German fluently but has difficulty hiding his accent. So he's almost doing the reverse of what he is really. Right. Yeah. But that puts him in a unique position of being able to speak German with an accent that doesn't sound right in case anyone watching the film could speak German and right. would notice those same things. Even so though specific. he would be able to speak German without that accent. Like, he's just doing this crazy I know. thing. And he, okay, so he goes to meet Churchill and General Ed Fennick, played by Mike Myers, of all people. Mike Myers was a fan of Tarantino, and he had inquired about being in the film since Myers' parents had been in the British Armed Forces, believe it or not. In terms of the character's dialect, Myers felt that it was a version of received pronunciation, which don't even get me started on what that means. <laughs> I know what it means, kind of, but okay. I think it basically means speaking English as intended originally by the British. Oh, boy. But I don't okay. know how to explain that. A version of received pronunciation meeting the officer class, but mostly an attitude of, I'm fed up with this war, and if this dude can end it, great, because my country is in ruins. I think that including Mike Myers in this is sort of strange, although it works better now probably than it seemed in 2009, which it was almost jarring because Myers had built up such a career of playing these ridiculous characters in the Austin Powers film. That's right. And so you're almost expecting this to be goofy, too goofy, yeah. like too silly. But it's not. I mean, he basically plays it straight. I think that a lot of British officers probably seemed like this. Okay. In a sense. <laughs> yeah. I do think that he's playing it as straight as sure. he needs to for this movie, at least. I agree with that. So Hickox is recruited for Operation Kino, a British attack on the premiere of Nation's Pride, partnering up with the Bastards. The plan is to rendezvous at a tavern with an undercover allied agent who turns out to be German film star Bridget von Hammersmark, played by Diane Kruger, as she will be attending the premiere in case you were wondering why it needed to be her, she's still in the good graces of the German film community. She's going to get tickets to this event. That's their in. But right. secretly, she's been working with the British. That rare combo of movie star and spy? Yeah. I don't know if this is based off a real person, but when shit went down right. in the 30s, into the 40s, but in the 30s in, in Germany, I do think that people in the film community were thrust into the position of being political if they didn't agree with this stuff. You would notice earlier in the film that Goebbels flips out when Francesca brings up the name Lillian Harvey. Right. And that's because Lillian Harvey had helped a 
I think choreographer who was Jewish escape. I see. And get out or something like that. So he's furious about it. Okay. Yeah. She had done something like help a Jewish friend of hers who was in the film community escape and it was public knowledge or something like that. And that's why he's freaking out about the name. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the idea that she's a spy is a little bit much, but the fact that she would be using her celebrity in a positive way, I mean, I don't know. I guess it kind of fits. Sure. And you have to have a way for them to get into the premiere. I'm good with it. Unfortunately, the tavern turns out to be in a basement, an issue that Aldo Rain spots immediately. Yeah, and he's very vocal about his displeasure with the choice. It's in a fucking basement. (laughs) It is weird that you're thinking that you're seeing a Brad Pitt movie and he's like off camera basically for like 45 minutes after his introduction. You're like, okay, here's all this other stuff going on. With no other choice in the days before cell phones, Hickox, along with Stiglitz and Wiki from The Bastards, go into the tavern to meet Von Hammersmark. Immediately bad news. <laughs> yeah, the plan is that this is going to be a place where it's mostly French people. The Germans aren't going to be there. It's sort of out of the way. You don't really get a sense of like where exactly in France it is. I don't think it it's supposed like, to be in Paris. It seems like they're in like some random like village. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be northern france although it's never really explained why hellstrom is there after we just saw him in in paris but i don't know not that they would stay in one place the whole time necessarily but let's be honest ultimately the rendezvous could not go much worse than it does (laughs) so we have the basement location and then we also have the unexpected german presence a bunch of soldiers are playing the who am i game with the cards on their foreheads yeah just drunken buffoons really they're celebrating the birth of one of the soldier's sons he's become a father for the first time so they were granted leave and that's why they're there but i think it's pretty obvious that tarantino wants you to question von hammersmark's loyalty like did she set this up what's the deal right again tension right away being created here even like the group of dudes that have gone in here (laughs) we've got a guy that's not part of the main group with fassbender The one dude seems like crazy. The guy that just killed all the German officers. Stiglitz? Yeah, Stiglitz. (laughs) Yeah, he's like sharpening his knife and getting ready to go in. I will say, he is actually better at keeping his cool than what you would have expected. Yeah. He actually has to sort of stay in character throughout this scene. (laughs) Don't I look calm? Yeah. (laughs) Well, now that you put it like that, yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of like funny that it ends up being like these three dudes. Well, they both speak German and so does Hickox. Yeah. That's really the whole deal. The reason. Yeah. And the way that they set this scene up is great too, because at first you're like, okay, these seem like drunken buffoons, as you call them. They're just regular enlisted men blowing off steam. They don't seem suspicious of anything. No, no. They're not in that mindset at all. They're pretty deep into this night of drinking, I'd say. And then the reveal that this familiar face is there. Right. Major Dieter Hellstrom. So Hickox inadvertently draws the attention of Sergeant Wilhelm at first, who they can handle, but then Major Dieter Hellstrom, who we didn't see at first, a face we recognize from some of the Paris scenes from earlier. I got to tell you, though, Wilhelm, the embarrassing lingerer. (laughs) Well, imagine that you're at a bar and you're drunk and... 
Ana de Armas is hanging out and she's talking to you. We should hit we should hit on that. Like the idea that you're just at a bar drinking and a movie star is just drinking with you. And she's charming and nice. And having fun. Yeah. Like and then she goes and sits with other people. You can't really blame him for continuing (laughs) to linger back over there and just trying to keep it going. So Hickox gives himself away with this accent, which is noticed by Wilhelm, and then the emerging Hellstrom who is a much higher ranking person. He's a major. He's wearing like the prototypical like leather Most long coat. insane uniform. Yeah, like straight out of like Ilsa, right. she, she yeah. wolf of the ancestors. <laughs> you know, just like what the fuck yeah, is yeah. this? They notice Hickok's unusual accent. And then eventually after some discussion, he finally fully gives himself away when he uses a British hand gesture as opposed to the German equivalent, which I don't know how we can explain this if you haven't seen the film. You got to use your thumb for three. Yeah, thumb, pointer, middle. Right. means three Which is the German. more natural way for... In America and England. I don't think... If you did it either thing. way in America, I don't think it would anyone would notice, but... Well, yeah, that's true, too. In but... England, it would be the pointer, middle, and ring finger. Right. And that's the way he orders three drinks. And I think that Hellstrom already was pretty close to being convinced that he was not who he was saying he was, but then that put him over the edge. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it was just that. I think he was almost there. Oh, I agree. I think... Why is he... Because why is he's he He's clearly like fucking with them, right? He's not acting normal. Yeah, the one thing I was thinking about was... If Hellstrom is as high up as he appears, because he's directly involved with Goebbels, he's bringing Shoshana there, Right, he seems to be in the mix. I know that this is before the internet and things like that, but there's a decent chance he would recognize Stiglitz. Wouldn't they all know what he looked like? I don't know. It's hard to say. He was a guy who they had captured after killing high-ranking Nazi It does officials. feel like word would travel as to what this guy looks like yeah the bastards broke him out of a prison cell yeah to where save he was him like because they were like going to be awesome executed i don't know it just seems like somebody like hellstrom would know who he was but okay so they get themselves into the pickle they set themselves up into a traditional tarantino type scene where everyone has guns drawn and everyone of course hickox and hellstrom have guns pointed at their balls yeah one of the, just the great moments, though, the build to that, them explaining that they both have guns pointed at the other's testicles and Stiglitz just being like, that makes three of us. Yeah, slams his gun down. Yeah. Yeah, there is like sort of that badass Tarantino thing where the two characters, Hickox and Hellstrom, are like, well, no matter what happens, neither of us are getting out of here. So that's just going to be the way it is. Which Michael Fassbender's character lays out this whole scenario of like, all right, we're walking out of here or whatever. And it's like this German major dude is just so committed to, no, we're going down here. Right. I do think that at this point in time, they would probably see this as something's going on. Yeah. And it's his job to stop it now, whatever this is. Right. Obviously, he doesn't know the whole plan, but something's happening here. Yeah, yeah. That needs to be stopped. Because what is going on with the fake... German officers wearing the Nazi uniforms and everything. Like, what is happening? That's Something right. big yeah. is happening. A movie star is involved. Yeah. He maybe even does think it has something to do with the premiere. What else is uh, she yeah, around true. for? Yeah, true. Totally. So, if you didn't know who Fassbender was before this movie, you're 
immediately convinced of his movie star credentials here when he does oh, like I know. the well I, I hope you don't mind if i switch to the kings yeah he yeah. starts speaking english and you're just like okay this guy's the coolest guy ever I know. He, he's like, there's a special rung in hell for people who waste good scotch. Yeah. He drinks the scotch. Such and a cool finish. And then, of course, it builds up into this huge gunfight. Everyone shoots everyone. The bar people are shooting. <laughs> like, everyone's shooting. Everyone's getting killed. It's hard to tell who the bartender is supporting because he has this. I feel like he has to be on our hero's side just to even it out because there's, yeah. there's like. A half dozen other Nazis at the other right. table. Yeah. It, it feels like the three or four on our side I would, would agree. be killed pretty quickly. Yeah. They need to have more. Although I do think that they show the bartender get killed pretty quick. But I don't know. Everything happens really quick. Yeah. <laughs> Stiglitz is relentlessly stabbing the already dead major. <laughs> like, yeah, he's making sure he's dead. Uh, he's like, well, he's definitely got to get killed. Yeah, yeah. And then the interpreter guy, it's like over in like a flash. Once that machine gun comes out, it's just over for the whole room. Yeah, well, Tell Schwager, who is German, had such an aversion to wearing a Nazi uniform that he didn't want to be in the film. And Tarantino convinced him by saying, like, well, every time you wear it, you're going to be brutally murdering high ranking Nazi officials. <laughs> and he's like, okay. <laughs> As a result of the gunfight, Everyone in the tavern is killed except for the new father, Sergeant Wilhelm, and Von Hammersmark, who is shot in the leg. Aldo arrives and negotiates for Von Hammersmark's release, but she ends up shooting Wilhelm when the poor idiot lowers his gun. A total doofus. Yeah, just giving it up. I do think that the opening sequence and this scene are probably the two most famous scenes or the two best scenes. I love a lot of the other shit, though, that involves Shoshana throughout. Oh, for sure. Including the scene with Landa eating the strudel and everything. That scene is awesome. And then the scene coming up in a minute. But when people talk about this film, they definitely fixate on the opening and then they fixate on this. And this is probably maybe aside from the ending, but even maybe more than the ending, this is like the prototypical Tarantino scene. He oh, loves yeah. the scene where everyone has guns pointed at each yeah, other. Yeah, gets in the standoff. I, I know. Even in Fastbender, he gives his little spiel, switches back to his normal accent, does the thing about the scotch, but even just being like, and now, about this pickle. Yeah. You know? It's just so good. Yeah. It's always fun to see this shit in movies, because you know in real life, like, no, no one, one could would be act this like cool, that. Yeah. Like, uh, eminent death. Right. <laughs> Aldo considers the idea that Von Hammersmark set them up briefly torturing her in an attempt to extract the story, but she convinces him of her loyalty and then drops a major bombshell. Which she was trying to reveal earlier and then things went awry. Hitler himself will be attending the premiere as well. So Aldo decides to continue with the mission with himself, Donowitz, and another bastard, Omar, taking the place of Hickok, Stiglitz, and Wiki. Based on the fact that him and Donowitz speak a decent amount of Italian. <laughs> yeah, Omar's like, I don't speak Italian. Like I said, third most. <laughs> third best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do think that one of the most interesting things you can talk about with Inglorious Bastards is Brad Pitt's performance. And we were talking a lot before we even started recording about how I felt like it goes off the rails at a certain point. Bonjourno. But- <laughs> 
but some people love it. And I know. love the whole thing. I think that it's better up until the scene where they actually get to the theater. Yeah. Although I actually think that stuff's funny too. I enjoy it. It makes me laugh. Um, the scene that really gets to me is the scene when Landa is like negotiating his deal. Yeah. And yeah. the way that Aldo is talking to him there, it just seems like too weird and cartoony to me. But of course, Brad Pitt does have some of the best lines. And one of them is We got a German who wants to die for country. Oh, right. Oblige him. Yeah, and yeah, then, I know. I think the, like I said, third best is yeah, I know. hilarious. <laughs> That was a legitimate crowd laughing hysterically scene. Later, Landa investigates the scene at the tavern and finds Von Hammersmark's shoe along with a napkin with her signature on it that she had signed for Wilhelm. This seems like just a horrible miss by this crew because everyone in the bar is dead. You kind of have a minute to... I know, but... Yeah. They probably weren't thinking that she had done something like that, and she's not thinking like that. Right, as right. As we've been yeah. hit over the head with, she's not an army person. She's an actress, which just seems like, give the room the look over, you know? <laughs> I know. Give it the once over. It's important to remember that a lot of the people involved in World War II were not trained soldiers, even people who had to become soldiers, because That's it right. was such a massive thing. Yeah, yeah. You have a film critic... In Hickox, you have yeah, an yeah. actress in Von Hammersmark. Everyone has to play their part, but that doesn't mean they always know what to do. And I guess the bastards themselves weren't thinking that she would have written her name on anything or something like that. So not the most difficult investigation Hans has ever had to do? He's also able to ID the German-speaking bastards as Stiglitz and Wiki. Yeah, yeah. He recognizes them. So it makes you think, like, well, did Hellstrom recognize them? Right. Who knows? Which brings us to Chapter 5, Revenge of the Giant Face. And now, I'm going to go ahead and say it. One of Quentin Tarantino's best needle drops in all of his film, Cat People, Putting Out Fire by David Bowie. It's absolutely great. And you want to know what else? I also love the song when she's in the projection room and Stoller comes up. That's some Ennio Morricone song or something from another movie that he did a score for. Yeah, but there is a difference, though, between score and just a needle drop of a pop song. Sure, yeah. An anachronistic one, obviously, too, which he has failed at before. For sure. I think his anachronistic music choice in The Hateful Eight is absurd. And I don't understand it, and it doesn't fit with the rest of the movie. He plays Apple Blossom by the White Stripes for like 30 seconds at one point, uh-huh. and then no other songs. Yeah, yeah. Re- and you're like, what was that? Yeah, I don't know. Weird. I never got why he, ch- he did yes, that in I, Hateful Eight. But this is unbelievable. Right. Her putting on the dress and the makeup. I don't. The think- scene looks awesome. Have you ever seen Cat People? No. The- Maybe that's why he had... Natasha Kinski in mind because she's in, she in, in Traders Cat People. Okay. But yeah, the, just taking that song from that movie and putting it here when she's getting ready. I have that poster right there with her drawing oh, the, yeah. the lines on her face. Unbelievable. For me, it's it's up there with the other two scenes that I just mentioned, the opening For sure. and the, the tavern scene. And we're talking about Quentin Tarantino here. He's known for a lot of shit as a director, but his music choices are always up there as Absolutely. one of the top things. And I think this is like one of the best. If you weren't into it yet, I don't know what else you could need after this part where you're just like, holy shit, I know. we're doing it. <laughs> we're fucking doing it. <laughs> yeah. 
So this is the night of the nation's pride premiere. And we see a little bit of a flashback type moment with Shoshana and Marcel splicing something into the print. We don't exactly know what they filmed yet, which is good because it's better to save it. Absolutely. But we know they filmed something and that they, they're splicing it into the print of the film. Aldo, Donowitz, and Omar attend the premiere alongside Von Hammersmark, disguised as Italian filmmakers. Yeah, dressed in these like insane suits. With timed explosives strapped to their ankles. Yeah, which, going into this, first viewing, I'm like, oh, <laughs> was this always part of the plan that they were... Suicide mission? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's possible that they were going to leave the dynamite there. Well, I don't that's know the other exactly thing. I guess it's like, they were, were, thinking. were they just sneaking it in this way? And, you know, their plan was to plant the explosives and then leave. Yeah, that's definitely on the table. I think everything goes off the rails pretty quick. Right. Although Donowitz and Omar never really know what happens to everyone else. And they basically leave their dynamite on their ankles. Right. It should be noted that the original plan was to have the Nation's Pride premiere at a much bigger theater, the Ritz. And so now that information is new to the Bastards, and the amount of dynamite they have is like an insane amount for yeah. a smaller theater. So this is kind of the part of the movie that I don't think is as strong as the rest. I'm still very much into it. I don't think that the tension is quite there the way it's been in a lot of these other scenes when our foursome <laughs> runs into Hans now, and well, we know that Hans knows. I do like this first part in the lobby so as soon as landa sees them sees von hammersmark he makes his way over immediately and later we'll find out that he knows who the other people are too right he knows exactly who they are and not just because of what he already knew but he knows like their faces he knows specifically which one's which he knows the names and everything that scene where he knows and we know that he knows. I think it's pretty good because he's so crazy. Right, when right. When she tells the story of mountain climbing, and that's why she's wearing a cast on her leg. To yeah, cover yeah. The when he does wound. like the mind, maniacal laugh. And he like has to walk away. Yeah, yeah. He's laughing so hard, and he doesn't care right. that he's giving it away yeah, to yeah. them that he knows. He wants her to be afraid, and it becomes, I know, this is our one reference point, yeah, yeah. but the girl with the dragon tattoo, where it's, <laughs> it's like that weird balance of politeness that yeah. people find themselves in and you can't get out of it for some but reason. But also they're in a they're now in it. They can't really make a scene. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're in the middle of this thing now. They can't they're be surrounded like, by all let, of the Nazis. Even the if you try to everybody. Even if you try to abort mission, it's up, you know? So something is amiss right away. And I think that an astute viewer not me, because I certainly wouldn't have thought of this the first time I watched it, but I've started to think of it later. You should be able to tell that something is amiss with Hans Landa right away. Oh, yeah. Because he just lets Donowitz and Omar go into the theater, into a theater he knows that Goebbels and Hitler will be in. Right. Why would he even take that risk? There's nobody searching people for weapons or Well, you're guns. just trying to figure this out. He's acting so insane. You're like, I, I don't know what this dude is up to. Right. But that's when you rewatch it, right. that should be a giveaway. Yeah, it's yeah. Like he just lets them right in and- if he's acting as head of security, he's not letting them in there if Hitler's going to be in there. That just would never happen. Right. There's too many important people. Absolutely. What if they just have a gun? And like, yeah, we're going to get shot, but we're going to take some of you yeah, yeah. or something like that. You know, but he just lets them in. He focuses on Von Hammersmark. 
the thing I wrote was like his laugh and everything. It's just like it's almost inhuman. Like he's just acting so strange. It's oh, like for alien. Sure. I do like that when she's introducing them and he's Brad Pitt. Yeah, yeah. Enzo Gorlami. He's a stunt man. Gorlami. <laughs> Say it again. Gorlami. Gorlami. <laughs> no, but just that he's a stunt man. Yeah, I know. I, I picked up on that too. This time around. I don't know if I had watched this again since Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but that definitely stood out to me. By the way, in Tarantino's cinematic universe, Lieutenant Aldo Rain is Floyd from True Romance's great-grandfather, okay. and they're both played by Brad Pitt. Yeah, yeah. So in case you were wondering, he does like to connect his things, sort of like Kevin Smith or yeah. whoever. Sometimes that stuff can be kind of dumb. I don't know. It's fun. Yeah. Because it doesn't make any difference. Right, right. It doesn't affect anything, so yeah. it's just sort of fun to... You know how like Carvey Keitel references Alabama and Reservoir Dogs or the Vega Brothers or, you know, oh, yeah. all that stupid right. shit, you know. That's just his thing. I think a lot of directors, especially modern ones, like to do that because the it just universe. gives them a sense yeah. that they're like working in their own world. It kind of got bastardized by things like Marvel and stuff and taken to a level that is just annoying. <laughs> yeah. Where people like will freak out that they see a character for 30 seconds that they already saw in the previous movie and that's really the whole deal it's like that's oh, like oh here's a character from another movie just like what the movie industry has turned into now that's like I know, people's favorite moments of anything but it used to be kind of cool when right, it was right. like yeah. guys like tarantino or kevin smith or something it was like oh this is like their own little world they've yeah. built and it wasn't oppressive like it didn't impact you enjoying the movie or sure. not getting anything or anything it was just a little wink to people who would know or whatever. Yeah, I like that. Just a little wink. Turns out, though, that Landa speaks Italian, so the whole thing is blown almost immediately. <laughs> In real life, this was actually the one language that Christoph Waltz did not speak, and so okay. he had to be coached and trained to, to speak this dialogue. But, yeah, it, it, <laughs> it collapses on itself instantly. <laughs> to Coco. <laughs> Dominic DeCoco. Dominic DeCoco. Von Hammersmark, she is like really confident that they're going to be able to pull this off when they're talking about it. She's like, well, no, when they got her in the fucking veterinarian's table and yeah, they're yeah. digging their finger in her leg, she's just like, whatever you want. Yeah, to right. <laughs> this is what we're doing now. <laughs> Landa allows the bastards to move along, but takes Von Hammersmark into a back office and verifies the shoe from the tavern fits her then strangles her to death. This scene became noteworthy in the aftermath of Uma Thurman's article about the Harvey Weinstein stuff and then the incident that happened on the Kill Bill set. And it was not Uma Thurman that brought it up, but Uma gets choked by Gogo's chain, I right, think, yes. in Kill Bill. And Tarantino did it himself. And Tarantino does this himself when he chokes Diane Kruger. Okay. The close-up of her face when you right, just right. see the yeah. hands. If you see that that QT8 that I recommended, they actually go through this with her All right. and talk about it. Now, because of the nature of this article, which was painting things in a bad light in the wake of Harvey Weinstein, Me Too, and the incident from the Kill Bill set, they were making this out to be a horrible thing, that he would do this himself and that he was fucked up for doing it. I think in reality, I can't speak to exactly what Uma thought about the Kill Bill thing when she was choked with the chain, but I know like Diane Kruger like would come out in the aftermath of this article and be like, 
look, I don't know why I'm being dragged into this. Like, I, I did not feel unsafe. Everything was fine. Right. Like, this was acting. And I think if you were going to defend Tarantino, you could say that he felt like he needed to do it to be safe. Like, he he didn't want to yeah. have to put that on the actor to do it. I think it's a whole lot of nothing. I think that they were grasping at something to add to this to make it more salacious. I do think that the incident with the car accident on the Kill Bill set was enough. I don't know why they had to dig into this other stuff that really didn't matter. I think Diane Kruger was annoyed that she was being dragged into something that didn't have anything to do with her. And a lot was made out of nothing. Right. (laughs) As often happens. For me, the first time I saw Inglorious Bastards, I thought this was a semi-shocking death. It almost seems like a weird departure for the Hans character. Obviously, he's been horrible. We know he's been responsible for the deaths of a lot of people. You never got the sense that he got his hands that dirty himself. Yeah, there's a lot of anger in it. And I'm wondering if either A, there was something more to the original script where he took this very personally, or B... And if he's got this whole thing planned out, why do this even? Well, that's what I'm getting to. B is, is his annoyance that she's German. And that she's betrayed her people yeah. in his mind. Is that what that's coming from? I, I'm and guessing. You could make that argument, yes. And I think it's unrelated to what he's got cooked up later. Right. Even though he himself is turning I know, yeah, right. <laughs> that's the ultimate hypocrisy, though. But yeah, that, that leads me to believe that maybe there was a little bit more that made this like personal or something. I, I don't know. It seems it. Yeah, because he doesn't shoot her. He doesn't, you know, it's, it's choking like this someone violent like that thing, very right. personal, oh, yeah. like up-close death. After killing Von Hammersmark, Landa has his men take Aldo and another one of the bastards, Yudovich, played by B.J. Novak, prisoner. I'm not really sure where Yudovich comes from or how he Yeah, I know. Involved. What Seems his like role he was, was in this exercise? Or something. Yeah. Okay. Well, he was already in the truck, I think. Right. Grab Aldo. But I, I figured he was somewhere close to the premiere. Are you thinking that he was captured somewhere completely? No. Okay. No, the other people are probably around. Yeah, yeah. So let's provide a little bit of historical context, which maybe explains what's going on here. Hitler, in one of his brief little moments that they show him before the movie premiere, when he decides he's going, he basically just says in one of the lines, the Americans are on the beach. Okay, right. So this is the year of Normandy and everything, 44. It actually specifies June of 44 at one point. So the war is over. It isn't 100% over. They haven't given up, but they're not going to win. Right. And everyone knows the Nazis are not going to win now. Okay. The Americans have breached. The Allied forces are too much. It's just not going to happen. And Hitler, Goebbels, etc. know that. And so what they're doing is sort of a last gasp here, this last celebration. It's all for appearances. The movie does not really tell us that explicitly but that's sort of the historical idea context clues and so the idea is that landa knows this too and he's looking for an out because he's going to be fucked he's either going to get killed or have to face a a tribunal which then he'll be killed like he's going to be killed Yeah, yeah yeah so he's thinking all right this war is over i'm on the wrong side and so he double crosses everyone now unexpectedly which still catches the audience at home off guard. Absolutely. We don't necessarily see this coming. But that's why this all makes sense, is that the feeling is that they know yeah. that their days are numbered. Which is not 
clear. You definitely have to pick up on those clues. Yeah, you have I mean, to know history. That, yeah, I yeah. think that's why he's because he never says the month any other time. And right. At one point, it just says June after forty-four. Yeah, yeah. And the Hitler line of the Americans are on the beach, meaning they're here. It's it's over. It doesn't get into a lot of the other stuff right, about right. World War Two, but that's. We but, know from a historical yeah. context that this is the end. And gives you a lot more insight as to maybe how we got here with the Hans character. Yeah. So he plays Let's Make a Deal. <laughs> he says, that's a bingo, which is just weird. The whole thing is weird. So, gentlemen, let's discuss the prospect of ending the war tonight. So the way I see it, since Hitler's death or possible rescue rests solely on my reaction, if I do nothing, it's as if I'm causing his death even more than yourselves. Wouldn't you agree? I guess so. How about you, Yudovich? I guess so, too. Gentlemen, I have no intention of killing Hitler and killing Goebbels and killing Goering and killing Bormann, not to mention winning the war single-handedly for the Allies, only later to find myself standing before a Jewish tribunal. If you want to win the war tonight, we have to make a deal. What kind of deal? The kind you wouldn't have the authority to make. However, I'm sure this mission of yours has a commanding officer, a general. Mm, I'm betting for OSS would be my guess. Ooh, that's a bingo. <laughs> Is that the way you say it? That's a bingo? You just say bingo. Bingo, how fun. Landa has Aldo contact his superior officer to cut a deal. He will allow the mission back at the theater to proceed in exchange for his safe passage through Allied lines, a full pardon, and assorted other privileges, including... Yeah, house on Nantucket. Landa wants credit for being part of Operation Kino. (laughs) I love that the voice he's talking to is Harvey Keitel. Oh, okay. He hadn't really been in a Tarantino thing since Pulp Fiction, so it was kind of cool to have him involved a little bit. I actually do think that Tarantino is in this movie as well, but even knowing where to look for him, I still didn't see him. Choking Diane Kruger. Well, no, I think he's <laughs> in the the propaganda film itself okay, gotcha. as an extra, but I never noticed him or anything. He also wants the U.S. military to back his cover story, which is that he had to do these horrible things. This was all part of a big Completely plan that's been ongoing. sanctioned by the U.S., he mentions that he planted the dynamite that he took off of Aldo in Goebbels and Hitler's box, and that turns out to be true. So he was basically all in. Aldo could have just said no, and yeah, he right. still just blew yes. up Hitler and Goebbels. Full pension and benefits under his proper rank. Congressional Medal of Honor, which then he's <laughs> yeah. like, actually everyone involved in Operation Kino. <laughs> it's like winking at them. Like, yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll get this for you. Full citizenship, and then, as you said, a property on Nantucket Island. <laughs> Beautiful is part so of the country. Specific. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the theater, we see the little bits and pieces of Nation's Pride. Eli Roth directed the film within the film Nation's Pride. 
Quentin Tarantino asked Roth to direct the short, and then Roth requested his brother Gabriel Roth join him to direct behind a second camera, to which Tarantino agreed. And then they, they ended up doing all these camera setups, and Tarantino was pleased that he gave Roth more time to work on it, shooting with Daniel Bruhl, who plays Zoller, right. the star. It became this very intricate thing, although it pieced together it doesn't really make sense because it was never intended to. It's just yeah, supposed yeah. to be shown different pieces throughout the movie. But yeah, <laughs> even in this movie, he's learning from Grindhouse, just like letting other people direct them, just right, always right. doing stuff like that. Donowitz and Omar are full speed ahead, as separately are Shoshana and Marcel, unbeknownst to each other. Marcel bars the doors to the theater as the fourth reel of the film is about to be played. This is the one with Shoshana's recording spliced into it. And behind the screen is a massive amount of old flammable film reels ready to be lit. Already had our lesson in the movie about how flammable it is. Yeah. Tarantino's not afraid to just take you out of the movie to explain something yeah, which yeah. a lot of other filmmakers don't really have the balls to do and i don't know that they really could do I it no and he is able to do it seamlessly like in a way that's not jarring or takes you out of it yeah i think that's just because it's his style is to do shit like that like to have chapter titles all the time and right. to have when the nazis are filing into this giant theater there's like little arrows that come onto the screen with names assigning yeah. like the high ranking ones that people would know from history and stuff. So we know who's who, but like other filmmakers can't get away with this shit. It just wouldn't fit what they're doing. Right. It's the tone. It's the giant comedic pipe. Uh, yeah. It's the obsession with the strudel. It's the little jokes that Aldo rain makes that are hilarious. It, you know, it's just, that's the whole style of the film and he can just do this stuff. So he can just insert a 30-second explanation as to how flammable these old films used to be. And you're like, okay, yeah, I get it. Right. <laughs> During the screening, Zoller slips away to the projection room to find Shoshana. He's still believing that A, he still has a chance, and B, I, I don't the film know. of his heroic exploits starring him should be pushing the deal over the finish line. I don't know what indication he's gotten that she's into this at all but well he doesn't know that she's jewish so he's thinking like this stuff should be working i am a hero and i am the star of the movie i am responsible for the biggest night in your theater oh yeah anyone could ask for in a lifetime come on yeah and he gets pissed that she's not thankful for him setting this premiere up yeah yeah so he tries to force himself on her but she's able to trick him into turning his back she shoots him but before he dies he shoots her too, and they both perish in the projection room before shit really hits the fan. Yeah. It's um, an awesome little self-contained scene. It absolutely is, and it's it's kind of unexpected that she has this sort of weird, remorseful moment after she shoots him. Yeah, and that is something that you could cling to if you were trying to push back against some of the criticisms, is that they do show a humanity to some of the characters, and Shoshana despite everything, seems to show it in a moment where she doesn't really know what to do when she thinks that she's killed him and then he's not quite dead. She makes this look and move towards him almost like she's going to, I don't know, go try to care for him and see if... Comfort him or something. Yeah, yeah. She's going to like try to save him. Right. But yeah. We'll talk about this scene maybe at the end when we can talk about maybe some of the bittersweet feelings of the end of this film. But 
I don't know. I think I would. Ch- I don't know that I would change this scene necessarily, but I would maybe change like when it's happening or something. Yeah. Donowitz and Omar make their big move to the box with Goebbels and Hitler right as Shoshana spliced in footage tells the audience that they're about to be killed <laughs> by a Jewish woman. Imagine this happened in a, a movie we were going to see. I'd be like, thank God, <laughs> just end it. <laughs> we did see Ready Player One and we had to go outside I, because I, there was a fire I in I was the thinking of that, yeah. <laughs> so we have experience with fires in movie theaters. It was pretty similar to this, yeah. <laughs> Hitler was there. <laughs> Who wants to send a message to Germany? I have a message for Germany. That you are all going to die. And I want you to look deep into the face of the Jew. Who's going to do it? I don't know Marcel ignites the film behind the screen as Shoshana's image laughs and the theater erupts into flames. It's an unbelievably cool image. Absolutely. Her giant face laughing with the flames like building underneath. Omar and Donowitz burst into the opera box, shooting both Goebbels and Hitler dead in an endless hail of machine gun fire. <laughs> this is just unbelievable. Before firing down onto the trapped, panicking audience... Until all of the bastards' bombs go off, killing everyone and destroying the theater. Okay, so they burst into the box. They shoot Goebbels, Francesca, the interpreter, and Hitler. Right. It's insane. Then the shots of them standing at the edge of the balcony, firing down onto that mass of humanity. It's just (laughs) so fucking wild. (laughs) Because... You have to almost imagine, like, well, what are they thinking is happening? All of a sudden, there's this face on the screen. There's a fire. No idea where Aldo is. The people down there in the theater can't get out. Right. So clearly, another plan is happening that they don't even know about. And they're just like, fuck it. We killed Hitler. Let's kill everyone else. Absolutely. (laughs) And they're like, for lack of a better term, and this might be somewhat of a touchy subject, but they're basically suicide bombers. They That's have what the bombs this has turned into. Their legs. Yeah, yeah, and Hans Landa does refer to their th- plan as a terrorist attack, and yeah, it's crazy. And after they're like bored of shooting down onto those other people, Donnie goes back to firing on Hitler's dead body, and just like the bullets tearing his face. Yeah, away. I know. It's like fucking wild. Really. <laughs> Similar to the end of. Once upon a time in Hollywood, yeah. it's just putting you into that position of you have you almost He's have to the, laugh at this. I, it is this weird, over the top, almost comical violence. I don't think it's almost mostly I mean, I comical. It, yeah, I think it's yeah. just, it's so fucking crazy. Yeah, yeah, you have to laugh. So, in order for Landa to not place the call to end all of this before it began, they make this deal. The U.S. government or military signs off on it. Landa and his radio operator drive Aldo and Yudovich into Allied territory where they surrender themselves. 
Once uncuffed, Aldo shoots the radio operator. <laughs> yeah, actually kind of causing an unexpected reaction from Hans, I'd say. Yeah, he's horrified and panicking the now cuffed Lando because they've handcuffed him. He might be thinking he's next. Yeah, yeah. Or just like, well, wait, what the fuck's going on? We right. made a deal. And that was part of the deal. And Aldo's just like, well, they're just, they're not going to shoot me. They're just going to yell at me. And he's <laughs> like, I can handle that. Yeah, yeah. No one gives a shit about this guy. Right. I actually felt like if they would have known that it was too late to stop the plan, they could have just killed Landa. But I guess, you know, that's just not what the U.S. is going to do once they make a deal. Aldo has Yudovich scalp the dead man. And then he himself carves a swastika into Landa's forehead. Which is pretty gross, actually. You kind of see his skin flapping. Yeah. It seems like the knife's going in a little too deep. You right. would be touching the skull. Y- yeah, I don't yeah. I don't think you could go that deep, but okay. And then he professes it to be his masterpiece, of course. Like just into the camera at us, the audience. A ass yeah. move by <laughs> right. Tarantino. Just like, all right, dude, we get it. So let's talk about the bittersweet ending. And we were discussing this a lot already, but I feel like it's worth bringing up again on Mike. It bums me out what happens with Shoshana. I agree. Not just that she <laughs> dies. I mean, it's okay that she dies. It's fine. But It's not getting the moment. Yeah, it needed to be after she knew that it was successful. Right. I would have had it so that Zoller comes up to the projection room, and then that's when the moment happens, and that's what prompts their gunfight. Is they're having their fucking thing happening yeah. here. He She's sees, trying to get rid of them. He realizes... Something's up that she's behind this all. <laughs> it's, yeah, finally, as she's announcing <laughs> yeah. it, a giant screen, like, my name well, is Shoshana Z- Dreyfus, yeah. I am Jewish. Zoller's kind of dense. <laughs> he's a crack shot, but yeah, yeah, he's not the brightest. Not good at reading the room. Yeah, and then, you know, you could have had it so that he shoots first rather than she shoots first, or whatever. Oh, gosh, it's like a Star Wars thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But whatever you want to do with that. with right. that. But I just wanted there to be a little bit more of a, a closure for her. But I do love her revenge. It is the heart of the story for me. I'm so much more invested in her than any other character for obvious reason. Yeah. If you're interested in that kind of a story, imagine uh, the just... film Black Book, the, the Paul Verhoeven film. Oh. It's, it's very similar where there's like, Nazis killing people, and then someone has their family killed. It it actually stars Carice Van Houten from Game of Thrones. Oh, who we like? It's a pretty good movie. It's not as fun or as good as Inglorious Bastards, but it's worth checking out. It's none of it is in English, though. Imagine so, so you know. being Shoshana's boyfriend and her not making out of this night. Well, I think they had to accept that that was going to be a possibility. That yeah, one or both of them would be killed. It would be tough to carry on for me after this. It's tough for me to carry on, and it's (laughs) fictional. (laughs) Really? Yeah, I can accept her dying. I just wish that she had her moment more. But the moment comes, and it is cool, though, because it's her face on the screen even after she's dead. And it does make it sort of feel like she's getting it. Right, it's carried on. She filmed it before. Yeah, yeah. Man, so... Wow. Inglorious Bastards... It's been, we're coming up on the 13th anniversary, which is insane that really? it's been that long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it came out the summer, like right before I moved to Pittsburgh. So, like, I think I did see it in a theater down here, though, too, like a, a second viewing. 
Yeah, I definitely remember when I saw it. I don't know if I saw it twice in the theater or not, but it was a different time. You look back at what was nominated, it was like up in the air, up. Right. It was just an interesting year. I kind of prefer 2010 overall, but yeah, yeah. 2009 was cool. Little did we know that we were going to head into this phase of Tarantino's career where he was going to just get involved in all this historical shit and rewrite it, rewrite history in his own weird <laughs> yeah. way. I would say that by the time The Hateful Eight came out, I was like, oh, God. But I've revisited a lot of his films, and I think like once you shed your initial expectations of what you want it to be, you can appreciate what it actually is a lot more, which yeah. is true for anything. Sure. But with Tarantino, there's always this, when is he going to just make Pulp Fiction again? <laughs> <laughs> or you know what I mean? I don't, like, well, now I feel like, I, when is he going to make Once Upon a Time in Hollywood again? That's what I'm feeling now. Well, right. But I yeah, mean, yeah. At, there, for years, this was going on. And I'm saying by the time Hateful Eight came out, I was almost like resenting this era that started with Inglourious I know. Bastards. Yeah. Because I was like, I want him to do crime stories. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I think like the hard part about where the deck is always kind of stacked against Hateful Eight is doing two sort of well, westerns. Yeah, yeah. That's in a its row. own thing. It's but like, I just ugh. mean like No, I know, I'm with you. I was erroneously including Glorious Bastards, which I think is like out of that trilogy that of those three that ends with Hateful Eight. It's it's by far the best Absolutely. and my favorite. But yeah, I was like, okay, I wish he would work in the contemporary world again. And even though Hollywood really isn't, I mean, it's over 50 years ago, it feels like the contemporary world somehow compared to the other three. So it seemed like he was finally coming back a little bit. But yeah, yeah. when you actually remove yourself from that thinking of what you were thinking when you first saw it in the theater and, and sort of that initial, like, why isn't he making the type of movies I think he should be making? They're all great. <laughs> Even yeah. the weakest, which I always thought was Hateful Eight, is yeah. very entertaining and sure, still better sure. than most directors' best movies. Right. <laughs> Bastards, though, will always be the jewel of that crown. Because I kind of think that trilogy ended with Hollywood, even though Hollywood is more similar to Bastards than like Hateful Eight is. Because it's not like Hateful Eight's like really rewriting a specific thing or anything. But, True. You know, like I said, I, I would delineate because. Hollywood feels like it's moved back to the present a little bit more. Yeah. And yeah, this movie introduces to a bunch of actors. I actually wasn't familiar with almost anyone in the movie beyond Brad Pitt and Mike Myers. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Obviously, I recognized BJ Novak from The Office. Oh, yeah, and Sam Levine. Come on. Yeah, I probably recognized him, although I, I don't know if it was an immediate thing at that oh, point. Oh, I did. Anytime I ever saw anybody from Freaks and Geeks in anything. <laughs> I wasn't even like super familiar with Diane Kruger. Well, I remember she played Helen of Troy. I never saw Troy, Troy and okay. I still haven't. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So I know she was in other American yeah. stuff too, but Wicker I just, Park. I just hadn't seen the that. stuff she was in. I'm pretty sure she was in the movie Wicker Park. I have no idea. Sometimes there's like actors and actresses that you just don't happen to see the things they're in and they seem new to you years later. Yeah. Wicker and Park, Diane Kruger, Rose Byrne, Josh Hartnett, Matthew Lillard. Rose Byrne? Yeah, yeah. An early appearance, 2004. Wow. That movie stinks, but I just, I, I don't know. I watched it like senior year of high school and I just always remember it. I've never seen it. What are you doing? What? <clears throat> what? Vincent stopped making picks. 
Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. Wow, Inglorious Bastards went way longer. Oh Should my we God. skip recommendations? No, we shouldn't because okay. I want to tell people to watch Yellow Jackets on Showtime. All right. It's awesome. The reason I'm telling you is it's probably going to come up as a give us a second. Spoiler. So I know that like a lot of people might not have Showtime, but they've finished the first season. So you can get a free trial, immediately cancel it, and you'll still get it for the 30 days, and then just watch it. You can watch the 10 episodes in the 30 days, and then we're going to do a give us a second on it. I haven't even finished it yet, and I'm recommending it. I All love right. it. There you go. It's one of those shows where I have to stop myself from watching it so that I can save it. I can't believe it. you have that willpower, to be honest. My trick is I'll wait till it's almost time to go to sleep. Okay, and there that you way go. It's, yeah. like, it's sort of impossible to keep going. I put myself in that position, although I'm planning on watching one tonight yeah. when you leave. <laughs> okay, sounds good. It's about a girls' soccer team in the 90s that's in a plane crash, so they're stuck. There's heavy hints of cannibalism, stuff like that, crazy shit that's going to go down. All right. But it also jumps to the present. You have like Christina Ricci, Juliette Lewis, Melanie Linsky in the present. They play like the grown-up versions of some of the girls. It's cool. Sounds like a loaded cast. Yeah, I did start watching the first episode, and I, I am interested. Yeah, so Matt has to get caught up. We are going to cover it at some point in the coming months or something. Just as a fun little give us a second. So that'll be my recommendation. Did we want to talk at all about Scream very quickly? Uh, Just quickly, yeah. It was fun. (laughs) Yeah, I would say this. This is the best thing I could probably say. If you're a fan of Scream 1 through 4, you'll probably like it. Yeah. And if you're like, well, Scream 3 sucks and Scream 4 is okay, or or whatever, you'll probably still kind of get a kick out of it. You don't need to love all of them, but if you're into the franchise at all, it's definitely a worthy sequel. Is it like amazing? No. There are times where it feels like you can tell that it's a low budget movie. Right. Even though it's like 25 million, but I mean, it's kind of low budget for modern day. Some parts that I found to be disappointing. But there were definitely some parts that I was having a lot of fun with it, and parts that were really making me laugh too. I think it was, I think it's funnier than two, three, or four, really. Yeah, it's missing some stuff that connects it to the other ones. I'm not going to spoil anything, but there are a lot of cool surprises, a lot of references and nods that you'll pick up if you've watched the other films. I will say that. In my opinion, Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox don't feel as connected to the story as you would like. I agree. I actually I get think... what they were going for at the end, and I kind of I can kind of see why people would dial into it, but it felt a tad forced to me. David uh, Arquette, on the other hand, is perfectly absolutely in, in, intertwined into the story. He's the best of the three in this one. Yeah, and he makes the most sense, too, and his yeah. character makes the most sense. The other two just sort of are there, and you kind of say to yourself, like, well, they could just leave. Like, they don't feel like they're that invest. They don't have to be involved if they don't want to, but they clearly want to. I like a lot of the new cast. I loved the opening scene, and I thought I was going to hate the opening scene based on the trailer. Didn't you? Yeah. They made the opening scene seem dumb in the trailer. And well, then that's actually, all we kept seeing, though, too. Yeah, but they just ruined it in a way. But when you actually watch what the scene is and how it plays out and the whole conversation and everything, 
mild spoiler alert. So if you don't want to know any single thing, okay. then stop listening. But in the opening scene, just the the shots fired at A24 and like <laughs> intellectual horror. Yeah. Or I, what did she say? Elevated horror? Right, right. The whole thing where she's talking about loving the Babadook and like the, the scream the voice. The witch and... Yeah the, yeah, the yeah, the traditional scream voice that we know. They they got the same guy that like Roger Jackson or whatever right, right. is doing the voice. And he's just like, "No, that's bullshit." Like <laughs> it's basically like sticking up for like dumb slasher movies too and stuff. You know, just like why does every movie have to be about grief and drama? Or, you know, just like <laughs> can't it just be killing people? Yeah, yeah. I loved all that shit. That reminded me a lot of the original. It took me back. There's some cheese ball stuff that comes out of it. For sure. But there's a little bit of a, a connection to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. People are pointing that out. There's some fun scenes. I think it's worth checking out. So I would check out Yellow Jackets on Showtime, especially if you want to listen to our future Give Us a Second on it. And since we covered Scream on this show and we're fans of the franchise, th- I thought it'd be worth mentioning that we enjoyed the new one. Of course. I think, what, you gave it, like, three stars? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that seems about right. You're not going to be, like, blown away by this movie. I mean, yeah, there's not a lot of fifth entries in many series that are moving the needle that much, but it's a fun world to come back to and could certainly do a lot worse than this. Some people were complaining that it's, like, too meta, it's too, like, up its own ass, but it's, like, I don't know, that's kind of, like, Scream's gimmick. Yeah, I agree with that. They're the ones that are allowed to do it because they created this that was the thing. that was what was great about the first one and i thought the stuff they came up with was good just like in scream 4 where they were predicting like a reality show on the internet like of actually seeing the kills in real time or that kind of a thing and i thought that this was actually like here's what's happening youtube criticism bad sequels elevated horror they were just like hitting lots of shit that was actually like happening it felt like okay Enough time has passed where a new scream can tackle new things that are going on in movies and horror, etc. So do you think, what's next for the Scream franchise? Yeah, uh, well, hopefully they just call it Scream 6. Or Screams with an S, which I think would be funny. (laughs) Screams kills. (laughs) Yeah, they even made a joke about Halloween movies and... yeah. Although they they seem to be like pro-Halloween, having Jamie Lee Curtis to be a real Halloween or something, but... I would say that Scream 5 is better than the two David Gordon Green Halloweens. I agree with that. <laughs> which get a ton of praise and make a ton of money and all that shit, but I would say it was more fun than that. Yeah. Definitely way better than Halloween Kills. Yeah. I think there probably will be another sequel, and I think this breathed life into the franchise that had been dormant for the last 10 years because Scream 4 underperformed. Without getting too specific or anything, it it definitely left that open. Sure. Way open. I think so. (laughs) Wide open for more. And I think that the surprises and stuff are are pretty fun and interesting. And I don't know where they would take it from here, but I think there's stuff on the table to try, at least. I'd say so. It's a world of endless possibilities. All right. So we've gone on long enough. Right? And do you have anything else? No, we can. Let's wrap, I think. Okay. Your poor editing schedule at this point. Well, we're doing it pretty early. Yeah, yeah. So we got okay. some days All to right. work on this. <laughs> All right, so we're back with regular episodes now. We'll be back next week, hopefully. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Yeah. Follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. 
Let us know if you'd like a sticker or have a listener request. We are pretty much packed to the gills. Yeah, I don't think we can even throw that out anymore, listener requests. <laughs> well, okay. you never know what, right. I'm gonna yeah. pull, what moves I'm going to pull. Like, That's if you true. have something, just, yeah, yeah. And you, there's a possibility it would take a long time for us to get to it, but... So hang on, hang but with us. But it's always a possibility, so go ahead and sure. send something in if you really want to. Find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, Matt Crosby. Thank you so much for listening, as always. And we'll talk to you next week. See these eyes so green I can stare for a thousand years Colder than the moon It's been so long
mile marker. Hey, Martha, so we're oh. fake tree people oh, now. Hold on a second. That's why we're here. We're also here because Mom's having some sadness with K-E-N and could use some girl talk. Boy, could I. Is your ringer always that loud, Martha? One of my clients is stranded on the side of the road, so I might need to get, um, what do you? Happy birthday there, that's better. Happy birthday to you. I've always Happy loved that song. Happy birthday, dear Martha. Martha? Happy birthday to Troy? you. Troy? Um, Troy? Oh, for God's sakes, this is Martha. I'm Martha. Down here? Oh. Do we have to do the song again? No, that's okay. I heard it. Cool. Is today your birthday, Martha? No, um, it's actually the day after Christmas, and it is a big one, the old 5-0. 50? That's awful. Oh, well, thanks, Troy. It's actually OK, Mrs. Baskets. I've been dreaming about being in my 50s since I was a little girl. <laughs>